Welcome to Pick Me Up, I'm Scared, the podcast. I'm your host, Madeline. And I'm your co-host, David. Um, We're really working on the volume levels. I have been practicing in my bathroom. I really think the culprit here is how shrill and grating my voice is. I think I have an unnaturally low voice. Remember we were at the bar a few weeks ago and that guy just kept being like, your voice, why is it like that? No, over I don't over. remember. I think I like walked outside for a moment and it was oh. just like, so I was like, why is your voice like that over and over again? Which I feel like now many people can have that feeling. Oh, they can wonder why your voice is like that? Yeah. It's... Um, I would like uh, to provide like a counterpoint, which mm-hmm. is that I think that you're performing peak masculinity. I, you're tall. I You've always got the deep do. Voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're really thriving in your masculine form right now. Um, the sheer masculine energy radiating from your deep voice. That's that's me. That's you, a man's mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Famously, me also a man's man. Maybe. You, maybe more than me. You're maybe a, more. You're a debate bro. I'm a debate bro. That is true. Yes, mm-hmm. I'm working on that. I'm a reformed debate bro. Barely. I'm reform. I'm a reforming debate bro. How you? How many? You will not even have gotten your like one month chip. I mean, okay. I will say though, the other day I was on TikTok and I was telling the story about how I was driving in Oklahoma home from my boyfriend's family from the holidays, and my sunroof spontaneously shattered, and I fixed it uh-huh. in a really good way. I pulled into an Ace Hardware and I got fiberglass insulation and a trash bag and work gloves and duct tape, and I shoved the insulation into the trash bag with my hands wearing the gloves obviously because it's fiberglass and then I stuffed it into like the gap in between where the glass had been on my sunroof and the little slidey part from the inside Uh of the car on your sunroof yeah slidey part's the technical term yeah slidey part technical term yeah and it was maybe like an inch and a half space you know three feet long by a foot and a half wide or whatever so I put the insulation in the bag in that and then I duct taped over the whole thing to waterproof it and it did rain and no mm-hmm. water got into my car which is very very impressive I that's, think that's you are basically MacGyver I MacGyvered it I did a really mm-hmm. good job and I was talking about this in a TikTok I was like yeah this can happen apparently but look what I did to fix it so now you know if it breaks that's what you should do haha <laughs> um and this man was like that's why you don't buy a Kia and I was like, the glass has nothing to do with it being a Kia. Kias are consistently ranked very reliable and safe mm-hmm. cars. And he was like, haha, no, they're not. That's just your anecdotal experience. And I was like, okay, here's some expert reports. And he's like, those people are bribed. And I was like, okay, which ones do you think aren't bribed? Let's look up the Kia ratings on those because I'm also looking at this website that's all user-generated reviews of their Kias and people like their Kias very much. And he was like, those don't count either. So I was like, okay, let me get this straight. I was about to send this message where I was like, my anecdotal personal experience doesn't count. The experts don't count Mm -hmm. and other drivers don't count. So nobody counts but you who does not own a Kia by your own admission and would not drive a Kia. And as I was about to send this, I was like, oh my God, I'm arguing with a man about a car he's never driven that I own. You? I know I'm right. I own the car. I like the car. And I will say- Does it matter? This is a, I'm sorry. This is every time- I think in defense of Kias, I think it matters. I love Mm -hmm. my Kia and people are always like, the Kia this, the Kia that, they're a bad car. And then I'm like, "Eh, my car is more reliable than like anybody else's car. My car saved my life in a snowstorm. Like Mm -hmm. uh, it does, I mean, it matters. I think the Kia is unfairly maligned by society. But yeah, I just had that moment where I was like, 
why am I arguing with this man about that? I know I'm right. I don't care what he thinks. He's a wrong man who doesn't drive a Kia. And then I just blocked him. And that was a real moment of personal growth for me. So this episode is sponsored by Kia. Yeah, Kia, sponsor us. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, we'll start off with some housekeeping, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, My book pre-order is still going on. The book comes out January 16th, nine days. Mm-hmm. wild uh, from the date of recording I will be going on the book tour but we are going to try to post regular content while I'm on the book tour uh, am I getting a copy I get a hundred copies so do you want 99 oh I, I thought I was like a, I get a hundred copies so we'll see I oh, thought no. that's where <laughs> you I don't, I don't know. Going. I'm not a hundred people in my book you know a hundred people well, maybe um yes you could definitely have a book okay so, the book tour, for those interested, Chicago on January 19th, I will be at the Bookseller, spelled C-E-L-L-A-R, uh, Saturday, January 20th in Dallas, Texas, I will be at Interabang Books. Like, you're interrogating, maybe? Interabang? Uh, that's the question mark, uh, exclamation point. Oh, I don't know what that means. Is that an Interabang? Yeah. That's what it's called? Oh, I didn't mm-hmm. know that. That's cool. Um, okay. On Sunday, January 21st, I will be in Austin, Texas at Book People. On Monday, January 22nd, I will be here in my hometown of Los Angeles at the Barnes & Noble at the Grove, which this is the only way anybody could drag me to the Grove. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to go see you there. It's at the Grove. It's at the Grove. I know. I know. It's it's okay. You know, you see me all the time. Yeah. Um, And then on January 24th, I will be in Portland, Oregon at Powell's. And uh, we know that Powell's does the union bad. But there is still that link that one of our listeners uh, sent us, which I posted a few yes, weeks ago. on our Patreon, yeah. where you can buy the book from Powell's in a way where money gets donated to the uh, union fund. It's Yeah, I think it's their the strike, strike fund. fund. The strike yeah. fund. So that's really good. Um, and I don't have control over where I go. The mm-hmm. publisher sends me the places. I'm so sorry. And then on uh, the 25th, I will be in Seattle, Washington, in Elliott Bay Book Company. Oh, yeah. I like Seattle. Yeah, I like Seattle, too. Yeah. I like all the places, uh, except for Wyoming. You don't like Wyoming? I do not like Wyoming. Wyoming, you've been, you've been called out. Yeah, Wyoming. What's what's up? Fresno could take all of Wyoming. So I think I'm I think I'm safe. I feel safe to say it. I feel like I used to have to go... This is... I used to have to go to Jackson Hole a lot for work. When you did the fly fishing thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. I remember it was not my favorite place no it's a real sinister vibe in wyoming it i will say that where i was working there was no like it was mormon country and so getting coffee was real difficult and <gasps> jackson hole had coffee wow okay. so yeah 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 well, um, in addition to that, the other thing we like to plug at the intro of every episode is our Patreon. Great things mm-hmm. happening on our Patreon, patreon.com slash scared. If you are not a subscriber, it is $3 a month, and we are doing bonus content over there that goes along with every week's episode. So this week's episode is going to be about this thing called parental alienation syndrome, and our bonus content, which we just recorded and posted, is a case study in this. It's a really detailed look into uh, a couple who had a custody case and it involved parental alienation syndrome. And it is a downer, I will say, but it is uh, an example of systemic failings and shortcomings and our system's failure to protect women and children, I think. And it's, I, I mean, I think it tells us a lot about sort of like, you know, the way a, um, 
popular narratives filter into like official like places and ways that affect people badly like it's a there's if you're looking for a case of something being epistemologically weird this is that yeah no i think that is an excellent observation it's like we we talked about this in the bonus episode. We like to think that there are experts in charge of everything who know everything and we're getting the most up-to-date science in our court systems mm-hmm. and we've got the top people on everything. And we really don't. And we talked about this in our episode on psychopathy. Uh, and we also talked about this in our episode on kind of forensic experts, forensic science, mm-hmm. junk science in the court system that's usually used just to put, you know, black men behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. I mean, like, my my overall takeaway is, like, in general... If someone is telling you you're, they are an expert in something, don't that doesn't. Yeah, they, yeah. they probably aren't because it's kind of like that thing where, um, you know, the the people who know the most know that they don't know everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this week's episode we can get into it is parental alienation syndrome, and it is about this phenomenon that happens in custody cases, usually mm-hmm. during divorce, when one parent has been uh, accused of abuse. So. This episode, big, 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 big warning at the beginning. We are going to be talking about violence. We're going to be talking about domestic abuse. We're going to be talking about violence against women. We're going to be talking about violence against children. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, we will be talking about sexual assault. And as always, we won't be gratuitous about it. Um, we will try to just give you the info you need so you can follow along with the story and we won't get into a lot of detail. But we will be discussing those things throughout this because it is, yes, usually... Uh, parental alienation syndrome comes along with people who have been accused of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. So that said, I think a good intro for us to talk about this is to talk about our personal experiences with divorce. David, you've been divorced six or seven times. It's, you know, my favorite thing to do. You love um, to get divorced. Actually, my grandmother was divorced six or seven times. And by the end, I believe she told the last man she married you can come over to play rummy once a week and that'll be enough. Oh, love that. Um, um, dear listeners, David has never been married, nor nor has he been divorced. No. But that would be fun lore for you. I mean, I could I could get it going. Yeah, I think you could. Mm-hmm. Um, I my parents have been divorced a mm-hmm. few times each. How how many? memory of my mother getting married and saying third time's a charm and then I have another memory of her getting married and saying third time's a charm and me saying I think that this is the fourth one and she said well that one didn't count this is like the people who are just they like turn 35 and that is how old they are for the rest of their life yeah um so I have this memory but I feel like because my I feel like my mother and I always have very different accounts of things that happen so I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. accurate I think my dad has been married three times as well uh huh. Um, maybe four. I think he, my dad's on his fourth. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I I remember I was talking to I don't even know how, a person you don't know's dad who's a local character around town. Uh huh. And I, and he was like that Maddie girl, you know she apple fell far from that tree, but that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think Dwayne finally got a good one. And I think, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my dad's wife is lovely. I will say my dad's last wife was lovely, too, mm-hmm. but she left him to be in the woods. That's... Yeah, she was um, a lesbian, but she liked my dad, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Says good things about my dad. And um, she was, uh, like, a she worked in the parks department in Yosemite, and uh-huh. she had to come to Fresno to the city to be with my dad. And I think, ultimately, if I remember right, she was like, I just really want to be in Yosemite in the park. 
in the woods. She was covered in tattoos. She was super cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so she was rad from what I remember as well. That, I mean, that's sick. My my dad was uh, in the park service in Yosemite for a long time too. It's so cool up there. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, So yeah, I am obviously a child of divorce, but uh, there was no contentious custody mm-hmm. battle over me really. I think if I remember correctly, my parents got divorced when I was a baby. I think my mom technically had sole legal custody of me my whole life, mm-hmm. but I lived mostly with my dad until I was 12. My dad uh, remarried his second wife and she was a little weird about me custody wise she like i wasn't allowed to tell anybody she was my stepmom i had to say she was my real mom and she tried to like maybe legally kidnap me like do something mm. with paperwork where it was like Shh, no i am your mother but she wasn't oh, my like mother. she tried to get your your mom your bio mom out of there somehow i think so yeah. but i was really young so i okay. can't like, i just remember there was something weird about it and uh, yeah, but I don't super understand what happened there. So yeah, I have dealt a lot with uh, divorce, obviously, but not really custody battles. And mm-hmm. you know, your parents are still together. They are. My mom has been divorced once uh, before I was born. Right. Um, and I know that that was a terrifying and bad experience for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I recall correctly, she had to get my aunt, her sister, to send her the money to escape. Oh, God. Yeah, uh, really, really bad. Um, very, very, very difficult. And so I think, like, uh, an interesting thing is that when, we, when you grow up with divorced parents, everybody's like, oh, it's so traumatic to have your parents divorce. And I was always like, why would it be traumatic? It's not a big deal. Like, they just didn't mm-hmm. like each other. It's fine. I'm Everything's better that they're not together. But when you start to hear other people, other kids' experiences with their parents getting divorced, and especially what we're going to get into, you really hear how, oh, my God, like, this would be horrifying for a lot of these kids to go through Mm -hmm. the way some of these divorce proceedings play out. Yeah, it was funny. One of the things uh, that I read was sort of like, you hear about all of this abuse happening and you want to do something, but then you find out that it it is the court system that is the weapon of abuse. Yes. Yeah. And that's really what this episode's going to be about. So... As we get into our episode on parental alienation syndrome, the place we have to start is with one weird bad man. He's so weird. And so bad. It's, I don't even, like, I don't, some of the shit this guy says, I just like, I don't know how you say that. Yeah, how did he feel comfortable saying some of this stuff? We'll never know. Um, but we're going to start with this man named Richard Gardner. So sit down, strap in, get ready, because it's going to be a very wild and sad and infuriating ride, like most of our episodes are. Mm-hmm. Rife with systemic shortcomings, failures, and the system just continuously harming marginalized and vulnerable people, as mm-hmm. it does. So starting with Richard Gardner, this guy is a New York psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, analyst, sorry, psychoanalyst. Yeah. Oh, this is actually one of the funny things. There was some, like, it was... Uh... I love academic snideness. Uh It's one of my favorite things. And one of the researchers who was trying to, like, do a takedown of one of his things was, like, he cites ten sources, which is too few. Nine of them are him. The other is Sigmund Freud, which is, that is a psychology burn. Yeah, that really is. And we know that he's a Freud guy from the use of the term analyst, right? Because mm-hmm. that's something or, specific to Freud? Is Freud that accurate? Or like Jung. There are, there are a bunch of it's them. It's a school. There's like, yeah. Okay, got it. So 
Richard Gardner made a career as a paid expert witness in more than 400 child custody cases. And he testified most often on behalf of fathers who had been accused of sexually abusing their children. And in 1985, he coined this term called parental alienation syndrome. And Gardner, when he coined this term, he didn't do any formal research. He just kind of said it. And it was, we talked about this vibes-based, based on his own experiences and thoughts. Yeah, that was uh, the thing. Um, also, it was self-selecting, right? Because people were coming to him about this because they he kind of had put it out there that he was into this shit. He was the guy. He's like, if you're um, a guy who's been accused of abusing your kids, I'm going to defend you. I'm going to support you. Yeah. I'm going to be your expert witness. And so his vibes-based observations were basically just like him being surrounded by the worst people already. Like yes. that's... He was like, I'm going to defend the worst people in the world. And then, yeah, he used this as the foundation to come up with this idea, parental alienation syndrome. And, and he also incorporated some of his own beliefs in there, which we'll get into, which are real weird. And basically what parental alienation syndrome was is him saying like, look, sometimes during divorce, one parent will turn a child or multiple children against the other. The word uh, programming is used a lot. The word brainwashing is used a lot. Yes. And this is a condition where he says children will wrongly believe that they are being abused by one of their parents and they're not. And usually this is used in the context of a divorce and it's usually the claim that the woman is turning her kids against their father. Mm -hmm. So his outlook on this was very gender-based. We'll see later people take his theory and run with it, but uh, mm -hmm. they do it like in a, like, you know how like the Democrats do bad things, but they're like, they're like trying to be cute about it. They're like, oh my God, like we're doing a genocide. We can't fund your healthcare. Pronouns, land acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, no, is this is this the thing where we we lob the syndrome word off of it? Is that what yeah, we're talking so about? Yeah, so his ideas, he starts them being very, very, very gendered. Mm -hmm. And later we'll see other people run with this idea and try to be more inclusive. They're like, well, it's not just that a woman is turning her children against their fathers. Any parent can turn the other parent against their, or their other, can turn the children against the other parent. That's what it is. So mm -hmm. we see people try to make this more inclusive, but it really is rooted in misogyny. There, from the jump. I found one example uh, that happened at, I think, Family Bridges. Yes. Uh, that was, like, a woman who had been abusing her child. But, like, the majority of the cases, it, it's the it's, man. It's a man who's been mm -hmm. accused of abusing children. And, yes, uh, what he says is, what if they actually didn't do it? And the woman is just a big old mean crazy liar trying to ruin his life. And mm -hmm. she brainwashed the kids into saying all this. And it really wasn't true. So this is his whole theory. This is what he's known for. And... While this can happen in divorce proceedings, it occurs in less than 2% of all custody battles, according to experts. It's mm -hmm. not this major issue. But Richard Gardner is like, no, it's a huge issue. And he thinks it's up to like 90% at one point, he says. Yeah, the other thing to mention is that that less than 2% in those uh, instances, it has been validated like the vast majority of times. Like these are, there are not... The court system is not rife with unfounded allegations. No, it right? is not. That is true. And what is more prevalent in reality is that fathers are making intentionally false claims against mothers. That is mm -hmm. 16 times more common, but that's not what he is focusing on here. He is focusing on this non-existent problem where he basically just moves through the world being like, all women are liars. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go into this court setting, and if you're a man who's been told you did something wrong or bad, I'm going to say you didn't, 
and that chick's just a liar and she's trying to ruin your life and you don't deserve that so you can see why a lot of bad men liked this guy i mean joan myers has uh has a quote where she is talking about the ways in which the court system is used uh by batterers on vendettas against their er, children's mothers um often using litigation against her, especially over custody. Custody litigation is an ideal mechanism for denigrating the mother. Yes. Right. So what we see here is this guy is like, if you want to get back at your stupid wife who's Mm -hmm. mean and not letting you just vibe in the world, the court's an excellent way to do it, and I will help you do that. Yeah. So this is kind of where his parental alienation syndrome idea comes from. And we know, you know, Gardner goes through the world saying this issue of wives falsely accusing their husbands of abuse to turn their kids against them. He's like, oh my God, it's so rampant. It, it's in the majority of custody cases, mm-hmm. like 90%. And yeah, Joan Meyer, who is, uh, I don't know if you'd call her like a psychologist or a psych... I thought she was a litigator. Maybe she, it was yeah, she a litigator? Yeah, because so, she, in the article she says, I litigated this case, I litigated that case. Yes, okay, so Joan Meyer basically is every woman to me right now she everything she learned about this guy she was just like this is evil and bad and she kind of made it a lot of part of her life's work was to stop this idea from gaining traction because it had no scientific founding whatsoever and so she actually said gardner posited that child sex abuse allegations were rampant in custody litigation and that 90 percent of children in custody litigation are suffering from parental alienation syndrome disorder a -hmm. syndrome whereby vengeful mothers employ child abuse allegations as a powerful weapon in punishing their ex and yeah again we know this is not true and i think i mean it's she points out further which i think is important to say the absolute circularity of the argument because the argument is basically there are no child abuse or there is no child abuse any claim that there is child abuse is evidence that there is no child abuse. But is, in fact, the mother abusing the children by yeah. making them hate this man. Um, and so that, like, weird circularity, I mean, besides the empirical falseness of it, the fact that it just doesn't make sense when you even think about it for five seconds. Right. Right? Yeah. So, but Gardner is like, no, it's so real and it's such a bad issue. All these really innocent good men mm-hmm. keep getting accused of doing bad things uh, by their stupid wives, these stupid lying women. And he says, look, courts, the real way you should treat this, if you hear that a woman says that her child or her was abused by this man, you need to take those kids and you need to place them in the custody of the parent who has been accused of abuse. Because... He needs to be reunited. This is our reunification. The reunification thing, which becomes like an industry, which we'll talk about. Yes. So this is what he's saying. So this is 1985. He's coining this phrase, and he's like, mm-hmm. "Oh my God! Everywhere you look, women are accusing men falsely of abusing children, and it's not happening. And every time you hear it, actually, the woman is the abuser. So you need to take the kids away from her, and you need to give them to the guy she said abused them." And uh, he says severe cases might require threat therapy, that's what he said, Mm -hmm. to disabuse children of these distorted beliefs they have that they've been abused by this parent. And the descriptions of that sound a little bit like movie depictions of, like, rescuing someone from a cult. Yes, right. Like that's the Like, we kidnapped them and put them in a room and, and, like, yelled at them. Deprogrammed them. Until they understood the truth or some shit. Yes, this is totally, there's this, like, heroic idea behind it that, Mm -hmm. yeah, you're you're a crusader for the truth 
Um, yeah, and in fact, Gardner believes that if a mother was ever to hear her child say, like, oh, I was abused by my father, the appropriate response from the mother is to say, and this is a quote from him, I don't believe you. I'm going to beat you for saying it. Don't you ever talk that way again about your father. He said this in the 90s. In an interview, he's like, that's what you're supposed to say. If you're a mom, your kid comes to you and is like, I have been abused by my father. That's what you say. So, Mm -hmm. real class act guy here, obviously. And Gardner ended up working with a cottage industry of like-minded lawyers and mental health professionals to build a lucrative practice in the world of custody cases where he represented men Mm -hmm. who were accused of this kind of abuse. So there's some context people reference a lot when they talk about parental alienation syndrome, like why this came about. And Are we going to talk about some of his other... Oh, we're going to get into that later. Yeah, we're working up to that. Yeah. Yeah. what David is alluding to here is that this is one of this man's more mild beliefs. And we'll get into more of his beliefs so you can hear all about what kind of guy this mm-hmm. guy really was in a bit. But first, I think it's important to kind of set the stage for why this idea was even able to gain traction. Because like we mentioned, this was not founded in any sort of scientific research or process. It's widely discredited. Uh, so how did this guy manage to build a name for himself? And why does this idea still persist today? So the context for this we have to look at is, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, women started entering the workforce in larger numbers and men started to play a bigger role in raising their children. And there was this assumption previously that women should just be automatically favored in custody proceedings when people got divorced. And we really started to challenge that for the first time because we did have fathers who were like, well, why should she get the custody? I was helping raise this kid too. And a father's rights movement started to come about, and it demanded gender-neutral custody proceedings. And by the 1980s, most states had just started implementing joint custody after divorce. And courts also, though, started to get overwhelmed by custody battles. Judges were looking for experts to help them resolve the high-conflict cases they ran into, especially when they involved allegations of abuse. And this is really where Gardner entered the picture because he came in and he was able to theorize that mothers were brainwashing children against their fathers in order to gain custody. And it kind of played along with this idea of like, no dads are stepping into the role of being the parents. And also he was like, you don't have to worry about anything court system. I am an expert. And there is this sort of like popular narrative uh, that is like the about the importance of fathers in like young children's lives. Uh, like where it's sort of like, no, no, no. If your father's not there, everything's going to suck. And that's also a way to yeah. denigrate women, right? To denigrate mm-hmm. the idea of a single mom or, yeah. of, God forbid, two women raising a child. You're like, no, you mm-hmm. need a father. Um, yeah, so in 1992, Gardner takes this idea that he had developed in 1985, and he writes The Parental Alienation Syndrome, a guide for mental health and legal professionals. And in this, he says there are eight behavioral components that go along with parental alienation. So for all of these eight, we're going to do like a sample, like fake case. Okay. We're going to imagine we have a divorce proceeding and a mom is accused of alienating the kids from their dad. We're going to take Gardner at his word. Yeah. 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 What's this look like? So he says, number one, there's going to be a campaign of denigration. He says, children are going to be consumed with hatred of their targeted parent. Mm -hmm. And they are going to deny any positive past experiences they've ever had with that parent. And they're going to reject all contact and communication. Now we might call that going no contact. Mm -hmm. So this would mean, for example, you've got this divorce proceeding and their kids are saying they hate their father and he never did anything good for them. Mm -hmm. Next, number two, you're going to have 
what he calls weak, frivolous, and absurd rationalizations. So this would mean when asked about why they don't like the targeted parent, children aren't able to provide sound rationalizations. They're going to say either petty things, like they dislike the parent's eating habits, food preparation, or appearance, or, and this is important to remember, accusations about a parent's behavior that seem too grandiose to be true, like abuse. Because we know abuse doesn't happen. Right, exactly. That's too extreme. That can't be real. So this would mean perhaps the kids say they don't like their dad because he doesn't prepare good meals for them. But also maybe they don't like their dad because he's violent and they're frightened of him. And this is, I feel like, another thing that you see, especially when we get later when this tries to, when people try to sort of like make this respectable again. Yes. Uh, Which is this like insane conflation between like, I don't like my dad, he makes mac and cheese, and I don't like my dad, he's abusing me. Right. Where it's like... Yeah, what? they try to lump these things in together as though all complaints of your parent are petty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're ungrateful. So the third thing actually is this lack of ambivalence about the alienating parent. So this would be children having this automatic, this kind of goes along with what you're saying, this mm-hmm. automatic reflexive idealized support of the non-targeted parent and meanwhile, just automatically disliking everything that has to do with a targeted parent. And also simultaneously believing that targeted parent owes them something mm-hmm. that they're not giving them. So this might look like the kids saying they love their mom, they stand by her, and also saying their dad should be doing things like paying for their college or helping them buy a car, well, paying child, child support. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is really funny to me because it's like, well... Yeah, like your parents do owe you something. They brought Uh you into the world and they should take care of you. That's our obligation as a parent. So he here is kind of weaponizing this idea. And he's like, oh, you're so ungrateful to ever expect anything of your parents. Yeah, I mean, the ambivalence thing is interesting. Because on the one hand, I can see that he means like that they are unable to hold two thoughts about the parent in their head or whatever. But like for some reason, when I read it, I was just like, so he's like, if you're not just like, ugh, mom is, she's whatever. If that's not your vibe, clearly she is brainwashing you. Right, that is totally the idea. The fourth one is what he calls the independent thinker phenomenon. And he says, children will insist their parent did not teach them to hate the targeted parent. And they will say it comes instead from their own experiences. So for example, a child in our example case might say, my mom didn't tell me to hate my dad. I hate him because he was awful to me growing up. And this goes back to the like circularity thing where it's sort of like, no, if they say it, that's like the evidence that it's not true. Well, and it's like, well, if I said, well, mom told me to hate dad, then it's like, well, then your mom is doing parental alienation syndrome, like on you, you know? Mm -hmm. And then if you're like, well, mom didn't tell me to hate dad. I just hate dad. It's like, well, your mom is doing parental alienation on you. Mm -hmm. So it's like, no matter what, if you don't like your dad, it's because your mom's manipulating you. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fifth one is an absence of guilt about the treatment of the targeted parent. So this would be if children appear rude, ungrateful, spiteful, or cold toward the targeted parent. And they also appear impervious to feelings of guilt about that harsh treatment. So gratitude for gifts, favors, or child support uh, is considered like non-existent. Mm -hmm. Which this is so funny because it's like... As a parent, are you really doing favors for your kid that often, or are you just raising the child you brought into the world? Yeah, this is, I mean, it, like, one does sense the, like, asshole dad behind Gardner's thing, where he's just like, they never thank me for doing the thing that the court made me do, which was pay child support. Yeah, <laughs> like, yes, you're like, what? Um, uh, but this also sounds the same as number three to me. Like, kids mm-hmm. just generally 
uh, saying that the parents spending money to raise them is the bare minimum and him thinking that's offensive. I love the also, I don't know, something about it is like, I was a pretty, let's call it ambivalent style teenager. Yeah. Uh, I think that's fair. About about my, my parents. Yeah. I feel like that's probably most teenagers to yeah. a certain degree. You know, it's not the kindest stage in anyone's life. Right. Um, but I just love like, Fuck off, Dad. I'm going to my room. Parental alienation. I've been alienated. (laughs) I am a victim of this child. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, The sixth is, a lot of these just seem like they're repeating each other to me, Mm -hmm. just in different words. But he says, reflexive support for the alienating parent and parental conflict. So he says, the child's always going to side with one parent no matter what. No willingness or attempt to be impartial when faced with interparental conflicts. Which, right away, it's like, you as a kid should not be you should not be forced to solve your parents' problems mm-hmm. when they are fighting with each other. But he's like, okay, so this would mean, for example, mom says dad never helps around the house, and dad's like, I take out the trash all the time. And the kid is like, well, mom's right, and dad does not help around the house. Mm-hmm. Just reflexively. Just like, well, anything that mom has complained about, she's right. Yeah. The seventh would be presence of borrowed scenarios. So this would be that kids are using words or phrases that the parent they like, right, is using Mm -hmm. to describe the alienated parent. And he says it's going to sound robotic or scripted. They might be making accusations, but they're not supporting them with details. So this would be, for example, if a kid is like, dad is manipulative. But when you ask them why, they just recount scenarios their mother told them. Mm -hmm. But, like, also you can observe your dad being bad to your mother as well. Yeah, I mean, it... I don't know, this is, we mentioned this in the bonus, the, like, the difference between sort of family law and, like, criminal law and the ways in which, like, certain evidentiary standards are different for one thing. And some of this is, like, look, I've heard, I've heard both of my parents in moments of grumpiness say some dumb shit about each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that big of a deal. It's really not. It's yeah. not. I will say, actually, I never heard my parents talk badly about each other. Oh, really? Yeah. My stepmother said bad things about both mm-hmm. of my parents. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my mom and my dad were actually really good about n- not saying not mm-hmm. saying bad things about each other in front of me, which is cool. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and the last one is rejection of extended family, which he even acknowledges is less common, but this might be, like, family members related to the targeted parent mm-hmm. are also disliked. So, like, I don't like my dad, and I don't like his mom, and I don't like his whole family. Mm-hmm. Because I don't like my dad. So I don't want to see his parents, my grandparents on that side, or my cousins on that side, for example. Uh, some people also say there's more than this. They're like, oh, there's actually 17 signs of parental alienation occurring. And you break them into categories. So there's behavior of the child. There's behavior of the so-called alienating parent. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the new version that's kind of morphed from Gardner's original idea. Now you'll see some people talking mm-hmm. about this like it's very, very serious in this like newfangled way and the new version is more likely to say there's 17 signs so they would say signs by the child are expressing disapproval towards the targeted parent justifying their own hostile actions hostility toward the targeted parents relatives adopting the opinions of the alienating parent as their own impervious to feelings of guilt thinking that their own rejection of the targeted parent is their own decision which that one's just funny because it's like whatever you think is wrong Mm -hmm. and idealized perspective of the alienating parent and the signs by the alienating parent would be bad-mouthing the targeted parent, withholding medical, academic, or other important information. Is that from the, I hate, like, using their terms because it feels like I'm acceding to their thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, like, 
Is that withholding medical, academic, and other important information from the alienated parent or from, like, the kid? From the alienated parent. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like, no, I'm sorry, you don't get to be on the release thing to take your to pick up your kid from school. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or I'm not going to tell you about the the report card, or you don't get to come to the meeting with the teacher. Yeah. And this also would be referring to the targeted parent by their first name instead of mom or dad, but that would be for the parent. So, like, if your parent wasn't like, your father, blah, 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 but they're like, well, Dave is fucking blowing it, man. Dave, Dave's do blow it. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, that's you. I never call you Dave. <laughs> wow, sorry. I forgot about that. You're David. You're a full yeah, yeah. name person. I'm a full name person. Someone David once tried Roberts. to call me Dave, and I I couldn't handle it. Yeah. I couldn't it's, hang. It's, like, you do sometimes go by Dave Bob. There's one person in this world, and you are not supposed to tell people that. Oh, okay, you don't go by Dave Yeah, Bob. that okay. doesn't happen. Um, also would be confiding in the child, and that one actually does have some validity as being mm-hmm. something that can be bad for children, like when a parent over-divulges adult things to a child that's not really at the developmental level to handle that. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously stuff in here that I'm like, oh, it's not my favorite thing. Like, that's... Right. But concocting all of this into mm-hmm. this conspiratorial syndrome of some kind is the issue we run into. Um, Also, telling the child that the targeted parent does not love them, forcing the child to choose between two parents, telling the child that the targeted parent is dangerous, Mm -hmm. withdrawing love from the child, I guess, interfering with communication, and limiting contact with the other parent. No, this is an area where I I feel like I might want to read this, like, sort of lengthy hypothetical. Okay, let's Uh, go. What do you got? So this was... Also, this is one of those things where it's called Father, What Father?, um, and it was published in the Appellate Division Supreme Court of St- of the State of New York Journal. Uh-huh. Which just made it, like, I think the judicial system lost a lot of credibility in my eyes today just because I was like, oh, this is what y'all are out here publishing? This is dumb. Um, but it goes, um, even without deliberately intending to interfere with the other parent's relationship, a parent whose view of the other is colored might naturally selectively perceive and distort the child's relationship with the non-custodial parent. Uh, When five-year-old Sally expressed a wish to call her father on the phone and tell him how she learned to jump rope that day, her mother withdrew into sullen anger. Inexplicably to Sally, her mother was too tired to read to her. Uh, Denigration may be used to make moral judgments against the target parent's values, lifestyle, choice of friends, career, or financial or relative or relational successes and failures these criticisms are often insidious occurring over a period of time with different degrees of intensity like the wearing away of a stone assaulted by waves the child's perception of the targeted parent changes from its original more positive view to one finally conforming to the programming parents' opinions and sentiments. So basically like if you're not super obsessed with your ex all the time mm-hmm. even if you're not actively telling your kid that they can like sense the vibe and it's it's fucking with them is what it's saying yeah which basically means like right i think i called this the hermeneutics of suspicion thing where it's like every damn thing a woman generally like yeah real but uh does the alienating parent does that isn't just super posy has to be looked at through the lens of like they're being fucking evil they may not even know it yes totally um yeah. So these symptoms, you can see how this could be a problem, though, if, for example, your child is being harmed by mm. the person you're trying to divorce. All of a sudden, 
uh, limiting contact with an abusive parent to protect your child would be a good thing or withholding medical academic or other information from an abusive parent Mm -hmm. to protect your child might be a good thing um you know kind of telling the child that the targeted parent is dangerous that could be a good thing if they're like dad's not safe to be around right now don't if daddy shows up at school and tries to take you out of class don't go with him go contact a teacher that kind of shit right like some of these things are also things you would literally do if you're trying to protect your child from someone who sought to harm them yeah so this is where this gets messy and you know this parental alienation syndrome became a problem because experts were pretty fast like wait this isn't a real thing Mm mm-hmm So thinking back to our example situation, yeah, the parent who's being targeted with alienation might just be a dad whose kids say he was abusive to them and mean to their mom and who complains about having to help support them by doing normal things like paying for housing, healthcare, and education. And anyone with a parent like this, say they have an abusive or neglectful father, could just be accused of having been manipulated into Mm -hmm. thinking they were bad, but they're not really. And that can be really destabilizing for a child's growth. You're being taught not to trust your own perceptions of the world. You're being told that your actual experiences are Mm -hmm. wrong. And the opposite of what you think is true is actually true. Mm -hmm. And if a kid says... Well, I took this understanding of my dad not from my own experiences then, because you don't trust me and I can't be trusted with my own, but it came from my mom. Well, then that would be an even more clear-cut sign of manipulation. But like the checklist shows with point number four, if they claimed they came to these conclusions on their own, that's also somehow a sign of manipulation. Mm -hmm. So it's this lose-lose situation where if you think anything bad about one of your parents during a divorce proceeding... It doesn't matter where you came, where it came from. It's a sign you've been manipulated because you should just instantly think that both of your parents are equally good at all things all the time or bad at all things all the time. And it's often weaponized largely to harm, yes, women and children in this continuation of domestic violence patterns that have been sometimes occurring in the home leading up to divorce. Because remember, Gardner's like, we're talking about this in the context of men who've been accused of abuse. Mm-hmm. So you have a woman trying to leave a domestic violence situation where she and potentially her children also, or one or the other of them, have been harmed by this man. And what we see is that in trying to leave, the court system, like you said, ends up being the weapon that's used to continue this man's abuse of his wife and children. So this time, we've got the man abusing them with the backing of institutions to legitimize it. Like, the U.S. court system is a very legitimizing force. And it all, it specifically changes uh, the statistics of, like, how often custody is awarded to a, a, a person accused of abuse when alienation is... Uh, Brought up as a defense. Yeah. Yes, this is totally true. So it is used to discredit women and children who are like, I have been harmed, I have been abused. And we find that in the context of the court system, it is very effective. Which is, you know, why we have this problem too in society. We tend to use... Uh, if somebody's been convicted of something as Mm -hmm. though it means it actually happened. We say, well, it's alleged, you know, but then they've been convicted and we're like, okay, well, it definitely happened because Mm -hmm. it was convicted. And legally, yes, you do need to say that, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't get sued by people. But I think some people literally believe it in their heads. Like, Mm -hmm. we can say that man abused that woman and somebody will say, well, he wasn't convicted of it, so it didn't Uh happen. But you see, as we talk more about parental alienation syndrome in the court system, that the court is not actually determining truth. Yeah. There are so many things that go into this. It's so many people having their personal opinions and experiences. And what we find is that there are these biases, right, in Mm -hmm. the court system. And we'll look at that when we look into the statistics about how parental alienation syndrome plays out. Like, 
For example, in one 2019 study, more than 2,000 electronic records of custody cases involving abuse or alienation claims from 2005 to 2014 were studied. In the 222 claim, uh, cases in which parental alienation was claimed, courts credited only 23% of mothers' abuse claims. So, yeah. you're a woman and you're like, hey, you know, there's abuse happening in this household. If the guy turns around and says, well, actually, there's not abuse and this woman is just trying to alienate my kids from me, if that happens, you've got less than a quarter chance of being able to get, you know, mm-hmm. taken seriously if you're a mom. Several surveys also found that um, between 46 to 70% is the rate of custody, times that custody, either sole or joint custody, is awarded to abusive fathers. Yeah. So that's huge, right? One study found the average stay with an abusive father after custody has been awarded is 3.2 years for children. That's horrible. It's really, really bad. Yeah. Uh, And when a dad in a divorce case claims that his soon-to-be ex-wife alienated his kids from him, regardless of any abuse claims, courts took custody away from the mother 44% of the time. That's nearly Mm -hmm. half, even if the mothers and children alleged that the father was abusive to the family. So you talked about this in the bonus episode, but what we see here is, you know, the courts really favoring men Mm -hmm. and the experiences of men and the claims of men over women. Because this isn't even a 50-50 kind of situation uh, like joint custody, they're taking custody away from the mother 44% of the time mm-hmm. just because a man says, hey, that woman alienated my kids from me. And the statistics are even worse when you look just at cases where abuse claims are involved. Yeah. When mothers claimed any type of abuse, if fathers responded by saying, no, 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 there was no abuse, I'm a victim of parental alienation, mothers were twice as likely to lose custody as when fathers didn't claim alienation. So, uh, the Arizona Coalition Against Domestic Violence found a high rate, 46 to 70, award of custody, solar joint to abusive fathers after um, alienation claims were made. Right. Um, yeah, and in the study like concluded after mm-hmm. this that alienation just trumps abuse. Like, yeah. if you come in and you're like, this person abused me, if they can claim alienation, they're going to win. It's a trump card. Which is, I think it tells us something about biases within the court system and also just sort of like popular narratives. This yeah. is the women be lying. Yes, the women yeah. the women be lying narrative has seeped into the court system and we find that people are just more inclined to believe it. And it ends up being like an effectively a get out of jail free card for abusive parents. Mm-hmm. If someone accuses you of abuse, you just pull this card and you're like, I'm good. And mm-hmm. odds are you're good. And when genders are reversed and the fathers start out with the children, mothers took custody away from the fathers only 28% of the time using mm-hmm. alienation claims. So we see it is really gendered. It's not yeah. just like, oh, well, the alienation claim will set everybody free. No, it sets men free specifically. Uh, and fathers are overall just, yeah, much more likely to win than mothers are when they claim alienation. And additionally, men level the accusation of alienation against women like six times as often as the reverse. Mm -hmm. So men are using it more, and when they use it, it means more. And what it comes down to is if you say a woman is manipulative or Mm -hmm. evil or crazy, the courts are just more inclined to side with you than if you were to make the same claim about a man. That's it. And even when the father's abuse was considered by the court to have been proven, even when Mm -hmm. the court was like, you know what, we have evidence, we have proven that this happened, the mothers who are alleging the abuse still lost custody in 13% of the cases. See our bonus episode. Yes, we have a bonus episode about that where abuse was proven and it still happened to this woman. 
By contrast, fathers lost custody only 4% of the time when a mother's abuse was considered proof. Mm-hmm. So one study, which was actually found, uh, funded by the Justice Department in the United States, found the primary reason judges award custody to an abusive parent usually an abusive father, is that the mother is not viewed as credible. Mm-hmm. Women be lying. Women be lying. Women are crazy or lying. Yeah. Whatever, you can't trust what's coming out of their mouth, and it's either mm-hmm. because they're evil and they're intentionally lying, or it's because their little dumb women brains can't help but be insane and hysterical all the time. Yeah. These are the narratives that are reinforced by statistical data in our court system. Mm-hmm. So two-thirds of mothers in a study funded by the Justice Department were dismissed as psychologically unwell and in some cases, they were denied custody even after their concerns of abuse, yes, were found to be real and valid. Mm-hmm. So the Leadership Council on Child Abuse and Interpersonal Violence estimates that each year, 58,000 children are placed in the custody of an abuser by our court system. And since 2008, 864 children have been killed in cases where a divorcing or separating caretaker has been accused of the crime. And that's according to the Center for Judicial Excellence, which tracks news reports of child deaths. In 117 of those cases, a family court was involved prior to the death but failed to prevent it. And I just think about this story that was so, so sad. It was a woman had two children, and she was like, my ex-husband is very violent and very, very, very scary. I think he's going to kill my kids. I think he's going to kill my kids. And the man taunted her, Uh like taunted her and was like, I'm going to kill these kids. I'm going to kill your kids because you like them. I don't care about them, but I'm going to kill them. And one day she, she had all these like like uh, visitations that had to be supervised and it was this whole thing. Wait, he, she had to be supervised or he did? He did. They both uh-huh. did, I think, if I remember correctly, because it was such a contentious case. And one day, um, this court supervisor came to drop the kids off with him. He grabbed the kids, threw them in his house, like laughed mm-hmm. and smiled and waved and then blew the house up in front of them. Jesus. Yes. And she had been warning mm-hmm. people. She's like, don't, don't make my kids go there. He's going to kill them. He's going to kill them. And this yeah. is what happened. So what this means is if you accuse your father of abusing you and your mother takes your side, the court can decide your mother just alienated you from your father, even Mm -hmm. if they know you're both right and he is abusing you. But especially if they can't prove he abused you and they can legally force you to live with your abusive parent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is something we were talking about as we were researching this. It really is just the legal manifestation of of like every trope about crazy women. Yeah, and it's done in a way, obviously the court system is like a tool of abuse or whatever, but it's done in this way that relies upon popular narratives, but also some things that there are biases that do not of themselves seem pernicious or bad, like a bias towards uh, shared custody as a thing, a belief in the positivity of fathers as a thing. There's no real empirical evidence for any of that, but they get used as, like, they are the reason, oh, and also, we don't want to believe it's true. Right. We don't want to believe the abuse is true, because that's... Too hard to believe, it's sad, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, and so, like, those things end up sort of, like, conspiring together to create a situation in which people are in the judicial system, who are people, are inclined to disbelieve women um, and to believe that the whole thing is just a misunderstanding or she's kind of bad or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it really is. She's either... what there's Like Mm -hmm. I said, she's definitely lying. Yeah. And she's either doing it on purpose because she's bad 
or she's doing it on accident because her stupid woman brain is broken. Yeah. And this is what we see in everything we talk about with this parental alienation thing. So later on, you know, this idea, like I said, from the jump, people are like, this is not real. But Mm -hmm. despite it not being real, some expert grifters developed this little cottage industry around it, and they're making money. letters next to their name. They got fancy letters like PhD next to the name, and they're like, no, 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 trust us, it's real. And they end up infiltrating the court systems, and they Mm -hmm. get taken seriously as these expert witnesses. And because of this, this idea sticks around, and it lingers Mm -hmm. for decades in our court system. And even as people are lobbying critiques of it and being like, this is not real... The thing we see is that the language around it just changes. Yeah. Instead of being parental alienation syndrome, because mental health professionals were like, this does not fit the criteria for a syndrome, now it's just parental alienation. And then when people are like, yeah, but it's still the same thing and we know we're not stupid, then people are like, okay, well, maybe it's just coaching. Maybe it's just leading questions. So people try to get around it, but just everybody really, in their core, likes mm-hmm. this idea. They want is, to believe the women are lying. This goes back to Sally with her jumping rope or whatever. Yes. Um, thing where it's sort of like the amount of like minutia and like small penny ante shit that is like, look, you know, she had a headache and didn't read Sally a bedtime story. Parental alienation. Right. Right. Where it just like because you need or I guess coaching or whatever like new fangled term for this Mm -hmm. where it's just like it becomes a way to sort of endlessly comb over a woman's parenting which is the other thing like in addition to like continuing abuse it becomes a way to surveil her and like legally hold her responsible for everything yeah it is and when we say that this idea even as it moves forward and as people find new ways to talk about it they stop explicitly saying it in Mm -hmm. such gendered terms. Gardner, when he started, it was really, really gendered. Now, people will still put this theory out, but they won't say it's so gendered that we, like, any parent can Mm -hmm. do it. You know? It's not just the man being accused. Sometimes it's the woman being accused. Mm -hmm. But it really is rooted in this idea of misogyny. And to understand that, we have to understand some of Gardner's other ideas about the world. This man who came up with this, that we're still dealing with today. And it's really, it's really bad. Um, when you know about him, it's not surprising mm-hmm. that parental alienation syndrome would make light of abuse. Uh, in 1999, Gardner himself came under fire for defending pedophilia publicly by saying that it had benefits for human survival. Gardner's friends, this lawyer, for example, and parental alienation scholar, quote-unquote, uh, Demosthenes Lorandos, mm-hmm. he defended Gardner. And he said, well, the woke types would go completely crazy and say, oh, my God, he's advocating for pedophiles. Uh, but Lorandos was like, Gardner just wanted to stop false sexual abuse cases. Which, given the satanic panic of the 1980s, where basically every queer or goth person was falsely accused of molesting children... It's, you know, not a bad thing to be like, we should stop false sexual abuse cases. There's a place for them in society. But that's not what he was doing. No, he, like, literally believed that it was, like, you do the pedophilia to train children to be hypersexual for some sort of, like, procreation thing. Yeah, some, like, weird Elon Musk breeding thing. It's super... Oh, and my favorite part was, uh, I think this this is also from Joan Mares. Uh, He did, at some point, attribute... Western culture's excessively punitive take on pedophilia to guess who? 
Uh, it's the Jews. The Jews. The Jews. The Jews. Said like that. Yeah. The Jews. Yeah. So we've got some direct quotes from Gardner here. It is not at all what his friend Lorandos was trying to say. Uh, for example, one quote about this, he says, pertinent to my theory here is that pedophilia also serves procreative purposes. Obviously, it does not serve such purposes on the immediate level in that children cannot become pregnant, nor can they make others pregnant. This is so gross, by the way. I'm like <laughs> wretched yeah. in my brain even thinking about this. Uh, but, you know, it's important that we understand this is the man this theory came from. However, the child who was the child who was drawn into sexual encounters at an early age, not drawn into, molested, molested. harmed, raped, yeah. okay, is likely to become highly sexualized and crave sexual experiences during the pre-pubertal years. Such a, oh God, this is so bad, quote unquote, charged up child is more likely to become sexually active after puberty and more likely, therefore, to transmit his or her genes to his or her progeny at an early age. I will have more to say about pedophilia in the next chapter because of its central importance to this book. Yes, he wrote a whole book about it. He says, the younger the survival machine at the time sexual urges appear, the longer will be the span of procreative capacity and the greater the likelihood the individual will create more survival machines in the next generation. The ideal then, from DNA's point of view, is for the child to be sexually active very mm -hmm. early, to have a highly sexualized childhood, and begin procreating at the time of puberty. This increases the likelihood that more survival machines will be produced for the next generation. Wait, uh, I'm sorry. I want to. Can we linger? I don't know. I don't want to. But no, um, it's, sur it's, survival machines. What yeah, the fuck? Yeah. This is so fucking. It's just wild that anybody ever took this man seriously. And this is, I think, what you meant, David, when you're like, you cannot hear this shit and have any credibility for our judicial system. But like. Here's the other thing. Granting that he's like, look, these abuse allegations, all false. And then he's saying this shit. And then he's th like, and actually, the abuse is fine. No, it, this is the, uh, you probably believe this too. Well, no. Well, I will. The the Holocaust didn't happen, but it's good if it did. Yes. That, like that vibe where you're just like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, it didn't happen, but if it did, that would be fine. Mm -hmm. uh, he also made some very rapey claims about how society teaches women to play coy and teaches men to be aggressive and how that leads to, quote, some masochistic women allowing themselves to be beaten into submission. That's a quote as mm -hmm. the, quote, price they are willing to pay oh. for gaining the gratification of receiving the, the sperm. No. Yeah. And another quote, he said, quote, pedophilia is a widespread and accepted practice among literally billions of people. And after that, he said, the sexually abused child might be told about other societies in which such behavior was and is considered normal. In such discussions, the child has to be helped to appreciate that we have in our society an exaggeratedly punitive and moralistic attitude about adult mm -hmm. child sexual encounters. And in his 1991 book, which I imagine was self-published, because David, you said he self-published a lot of these things. Yeah, that, the vibe... Again, this, I think, was Academic Shade, where yes. it was, like, you know, an over however many... He has a ton of books, uh, but it's, like, an over however many books self-published. Yes. Yeah. In his 1991 book, Sex Abuse Hysteria, Salem Witch Trials Revisited, he tries to make it feminist there, he mm -hmm. wrote... The draconian punishments meted out to pedophilics go far beyond what I consider to be the gravity of the crime. So... This is this guy we get all this from, and Gardner's real hot takes on abuse of women and children are, sometimes women and children are asking for it, and it is actually good for society that they are. So maybe we should all settle down about this whole being mean to men for being sexually aggressive to women and children thing. I, 
I love, I mean, the vibe is very, listen, it's not happening, but if it is, it's good. We're all doing it. Like, that, because literally billions of people. Yes. They're just like. It's just like, <laughs> we all are horrifically abusing children. That is normal yeah. and fine. And I don't know why you guys are acting like it's weird. And it's like, bro, that's just you. You are telling mm. on yourself and all the other creepy scumbag, disgusting men that you are legally representing and defending. But again, in court, you're not saying, yeah, he's doing it. We're all doing it. You're saying mm. he would never, that woman's a lying bitch. Yeah. And it's like, this is so fucking wild. And if you want to see how his ideas, right, play mm. out in his followers who take these ideas forward in these parental alienation cases, one place you can look is in the transcripts from a family courtroom case in Pittsburgh in 2021. We've got a lawyer named Richard Ducote who's representing a mother whose child's father was accusing her of parental alienation. So the father had a professional witness, Robert Evans, testifying on his behalf, who was a follower of this kind of parental alienation Gardner mm-hmm. line of thinking. And this is how this conversation goes. Ducote asks... Can a parent inflict more damage by parental alienation to a child than the parent could inflict by, say, breaking the child's bones? And Evans replies, conceivably, yes. Ducote then asks, how about you have a four-year-old child and the parent punches the child in the face and leaves two black eyes? Could, in your opinion, parental alienation be worse for the child than that? And Evans says, potentially, yes. Ducote says, okay, how about if you have a four-year-old this is like, I'm so sorry. This is no, a really no, no, graphic no. Is, explanation of like sexual this. abuse. It's really bad, but I think it is important for us to understand just how very, very vocally and proudly vocally pedophilic and horrifying these people are. So Dakota says, okay, how about if you have a four-year-old and the father forces the child to perform fellatio on him? Could that be less harmful to the child than parental alienation? And Evan says, potentially yes. And Dakota says... How about the father actually fully penetrates his four-year-old daughter's vagina with his penis? Could that be less harmful to the child than parental alienation? And Evans says, potentially. So what you have is these parental alienation cases in our court systems today with these quote-unquote expert witnesses. And what they are telling you is actually that if, you're, if, if your parent sexually abuses you, that's not as bad for you as if your other parent tries to save you from ongoing sexual abuse at the hands of that person. Mm-hmm. What these people are really saying is that if you are harmed by your parent, it is the other parent trying to rescue you that is the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and this is said in no uncertain terms. This is what these fucking weird ass freaks really think. And they might go into, you know, court and call it different things and say, oh, you know, like, my my wife alienated me from them. But what they're really saying is, mm-hmm. it's okay for you to abuse children. And anybody who says otherwise is fucking up your vibe. And again, they will deny the abuse. They'll deny the abuse, mm-hmm. but... But the abuse is not the issue. The, uh, the alienation is the issue. And that's, like, always the thing, is that it's... It's a real, we, we change the topic. Yeah. That's what they do. They change the topic. Yes. So we see the normalization of pedophilia is an essential counterweight to us believing that parental alienation is actually one of the most dangerous things for children. The belief is it's safer for children to be abused than to be removed from their abuser. Because in Gardner's mind, hey, abusing children isn't so bad. We're all just mm-hmm. being weird uptight squares about it. The real damage comes with removing them from their parents, regardless of what their parents are doing for them. So this is like... The most deranged shit to me 
on the fucking planet. And when you hear this, you're like, these are just fringe freaks. But they're not just fringe freaks. These mm-hmm. are people who are active in our court systems. There are judges who think this way, which we will see. Yeah. There are people destroying children's lives, destroying women's lives because they have this mindset. And it's when we get into some specific cases where parental alienation claims have been kind of used against people, it's horrifying. Yeah. And it's it all stems from this. It's all linked to this. And it's, I mean, I think, you know, the thing about Gardner is I, I think he is fundamentally giving voice to something that is implicit in a lot of our, like, sort of patriarchal culture. I would uh, agree with that. Yeah. 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 So it's like, you know, he's the loudest asshole in the room, but he's saying what the sort of like hegemonic structure thinks which is why he's able been able to gain so much traction when so many people like literally everyone who actually did their jobs when he came out with parental alienation syndrome was like this is bullshit this is bullshit this is not real it is not founded in science Mm -hmm. but you know it's like Every kind of feminist who's like, oh, the ideal woman for a man under patriarchal society is a docile, young, mm-hmm. imma- like not matured child woman. That's what they want. They want a child. Mm-hmm. And and all of mainstream patriarchal culture is inherently pedophilic. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear men be like, well, that's just like some feminazi bullshit. That's mm-hmm. crazy. I don't want to date a child, but then they're like barely legal porn. That's what I'm going for. She's mm-hmm. 18. She's 16. Even hotter. And, you know, when you hear these men be like, well, what's the problem? She's legal. You know, what they're really saying is mm-hmm. if it was legal to go younger, I would. Yeah. And that is so normalized. And and it's just so interesting how there's like this conceptual disconnect between like you were saying, this is, this is the mainstream culture. Yeah. The mainstream culture is keep them young, right? Mm-hmm. And and then for somebody to come out and just say it, everyone's like, no, that that's not really what's happening, though. But it's like, no, Gardner's literally just saying what what the men in mainstream patriarchal culture are mm-hmm. upholding conceptually, just not as overtly. Yeah, and I think that, like, right, there's a... I have a tendency sometimes to think, like, when people are like, what? When they act all shocked and surprised when someone says this, I'm like, okay, don't be disingenuous. Right? Like, this is what... This is normal. Like, this is... It's not great. Right. But... Do you it know is what I the mean? bad normal we live in. Yeah. yeah. It's like, um... God, what's the movie with... Sp- is it Fast Times at Richmond High? That's uh, the thing yeah, about yeah. high school girls. Uh-huh. I get older, they stay the same age. Oh, no, no. That's, uh... No, what is that? Dazed and Confused? Dazed and Confused. That's yes. Matthew McConaughey. Or, like, every song you hear, mm. like, even the Beatles song, like, when she was just 17, if you know yeah. what I mean. Or, you know, these old rock and roll stars marrying, like, 13-year-old girls. Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Yes, it's like, this is a normal part of our culture, and we can act shocked and appalled by it. But if you are not acting shocked and appalled and acknowledging how insidious it is, how mm-hmm. much it is a part of our mainstream culture, like, you're just being disingenuous. Yeah. Because it is everywhere. And feminists have been telling us it's everywhere. And mm-hmm. people have laughed them off as being extreme. But, yeah. no, it's real. And it's it's permeated, like, our justice system. So, you know, despite its popularity in divorce proceedings, which, unfortunately, it is a popular line of thinking mm-hmm. in divorce proceedings, the medical community, yes, has widely rejected the use of first of all, the word syndrome in a major way, but also Mm -hmm. just the concept of parental alienation in general. Like, 
The APA, the American Psychiatric Association, they've repeatedly declined to include parental alienation in the DSM-5, which is the group's diagnostic manual, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Madeline Milkman, who's a licensed psychologist in New Jersey who researches child custody and traumatic memory, says the theory relies heavily on perceptions of women in Judeo-Christian societies as hysterical, vitriolic, and irrational, mm -hmm. and says once you start on that train ride and you believe that the mother has programmed the child, it no longer matters what the child says because the child is not credible and the mother's not credible. And she holds a doctorate in psychology, right? And she says... Well, she's not credible. <laughs> she's, she's a woman. <laughs> of course. She says this doubt can lead to a snowball effect in family courts fueled by, quote, experts who testify on behalf of the alienation belief system. Experts like mm -hmm. who? Experts like that guy Evans, who's saying that it's actually worse to remove children from instances of, for example, sexual abuse than to mm. let them contain, uh, just remain in them. Uh, the World Health Organization has denounced the idea of parental alienation. The National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges says the theory fails to meet court evidentiary standards. The UN uh, had a special report released by the Human Rights Council that blasted parental alienation, calling it a pseudo-concept, and said member states should prohibit using this in family courts because it is a really, really bad thing. Dr. David Corwin is a professor and director of pediatric forensic services at the University of Utah and a past president of the APA, oh no, sorry, of the American Professional Society on the Abuse of Children. Uh, the f former member of the APA also has yeah. gone against this guy. I thought it was this guy, but it's not. Uh -huh. Just all these high up medical people are like, what is happening? So this guy said, true mental health disorders are more equally distributed throughout the population, regardless of socioeconomic mm -hmm. status, class, or social context. But parental alienation, that manifests nearly exclusively in custody litigation amongst children from higher socioeconomic backgrounds because mm -hmm. what we see needing to happen is these men need to pay all of these quote-unquote expert witnesses to come yeah. defend them and it costs a lot of money so it's middle class and upper middle class and rich men who are able to afford to get these experts into court to say this shit on their behalf wait you're telling me that that rich men abuse people yes i know shocking and then they pay to cover up their crimes it, yeah somebody should really write about this that's that people that's need to crazy know. yeah uh richard ducote uh who was the guy that we heard in that exchange absolutely being flabbergasted by the dude saying that it's conceivable that all the harm that's bad is just the alienation and not the actual harm richard ducote is this attorney who specializes in defending parents who are accused of alienation and he says Parental alienation concocts this notion that if a kid exhibits certain symptoms that incidentally are the same symptoms of being abused, it was alienation. It was a very clever idea to take the evidence of a child being abused and recast it. Mm -hmm. Still though, a few professionals do support this idea. Uh, and they vary in how much they pledge allegiance to Gardner's original version of parental alienation. Some classify it as a relational disorder, Others continue to just defend Gardner's conceptualization of parental alienation syndrome like full force. Uh, some, like Amy J. O. Baker, hold a doctorate in developmental psychology, but not a licensed psychologist. I told this had all of them. This is a theme. It's they like, all are like, I got a doctorate, but they don't actually practice. They're not actually yeah. licensed. Some, like Jennifer Harmon, uh, who's an associate professor of psychology at Colorado State University, serves as an expert witness on parental alienation, she argues that pointing out the gender deconstruction of parental alienation syndrome as a way to make women look crazy or manipulative or evil actually just overlooks men as victims of domestic violence and abuse. So it's actually sexist that you're doing that. If mm -hmm. you're saying that this harms women, that's because you're being sexist, according to her. But, like, 
sexist against men. Men. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, worth pointing out, the facts show that, yes, obviously men do experience yeah. domestic violence, but it is not nearly at the rate that women do. So this is an issue that actually disproportionately mm-hmm. does affect women. And we can see by Gardner's belief system, this is founded in this idea of, like, misogyny and mm-hmm. control. Like, the things he said about how some women... Uh, women are trained to play coy and they actually all oh, want it? Come to get on. The, what was it? To get the sperm? Yeah, to get oh. the sperm. They want the sperm so bad. Oh my God, it's just wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and they try to get around the pseudoscience claims because again, all these experts are like, parental alienation syndrome is pseudoscience. Why are we using this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but people will just use different language. They'll coach They'll coach uh, mm-hmm. their clients to avoid using the term parental alienation because it has a bad rap now. And they'll instead be told, yes, use gatekeeping, use coaching, use triangulation. And this just reminds me of how mm-hmm. insidious language can be. It's the same thing, but you're getting away with it because you're calling it something different. And I think, I mean, it It play. I love that they're using gatekeeping. That one, for some reason, I'm just like, that's... Yeah, what is also that therapy speak yeah. thing, where if you use therapy speak in the right way, you can manipulate people into believing anything. No, and I, like, I feel like it's a thing that you see where you see people use, like, kind of therapy speak, like, very whatever terms to just, like, to not just cover up abuse, but to abuse people. Yeah, In this way that I'm, it's always just like, yeah, it's... Different, you know, different suit, same thing, kind of. Um, but it's also, like, they found a new toy to play with. Right. Right. Like, mm-hmm. they found a new way to... It's what uh, To manipulate and harm people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why is this still a thing? Obviously, capitalism. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because there's a whole industry around this. There's, there mm-hmm. is the parental alienation industrial complex. So, to understand this... You got to go where the money goes. You got to follow the money. Mm-hmm. So while few mainstream professional groups have accepted this as a real condition, programs across the country are making a ton of money off of this concept. And they're claiming to be able to treat it. They're mm-hmm. representing people who've been accused of it. You know, this is really where the money can be made. Uh, so let's say, for example, you're like, I can treat parental alienation. It would be pretty standard for you to charge a minimum of $15,000 for a four-day intervention, and that would be court-ordered in many cases. Yeah, there, there's a case actually, you know, interestingly, one of the few cases where it was like a woman abusing the yes. kids or whatever, um, where or they were court-ordered, sent to the Family Bridges place, which is in the Bay Area. Which we will talk about uh, in more detail in a second. But... The judge in the case suggested that they, like, sell their house in order to afford to do this. Yeah, because the courts can make you, as a parent, come up with the money on your own to pay for this stuff. And they'll be like, Mm -hmm. well, you don't get to see your kids until you do it. Yeah. Which is so wild. Um, Also, there could be, for example, $5,000 a day to have Mm -hmm. a parental alienation lawyer come provide expert testimony on your custody case and be Mm -hmm. like, yeah, my client's actually the victim, not the bad guy. One lawyer said, oh, yeah, a client once paid me $50,000 to appear in court alone over Mm -hmm. the course of a year at all these different proceedings. And that's one client. One client. She's making bank. Yeah. Uh, Robin Deutsch, who's the chair of the APA's working group on high-conflict family relationships involving children, she cynically remarks, business is booming when it comes to these types of deals. And the way it works is this, okay? So, this would get diagnosed, parental alienation syndrome, 
not usually in therapy or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's almost exclusively in a family court setting, either by a privately hired expert witness that you pay for, cha-ching, or court-appointed custody evaluators, which Mm -hmm. you also can be paying for, cha-ching. Yeah. Yeah, like remember in our bonus episode, if you listened on the Patreon, Mm -hmm. uh, one guy who was accused of this paid a a court-appointed evaluator to Mm -hmm. give him a report saying that he was a good guy, free and clear. Mm-hmm. So that's for our, our bonus listeners. And the, this kind of thing uh, will then be used to explain why a minor is claiming that he or she is being abused, right? This will deny the possibility that this child is being abused and you're basically paying for a person to say you're not. And mm-hmm. everyone just agrees that this makes sense and is rational and isn't suspicious at all. And family court judges, they operate with a lot of discretion and a not very much oversight. Like they, yeah. they're kind of like the the kings of their own little castles over there. And they they are drinking from the same well of bullshit. Yes, right. Totally. Like, Some of them have buddy buddy deals with mm-hmm. a lot of these people who claim to be able to fix it. Right. Yeah. Um. It's just really wild when you dig into it. And also, it's hard to dig into it because family court records are routinely sealed from the public, mm-hmm. so you don't super know what's going on. Uh, in some states, family court judges might appoint the evaluator to assess right in the best interest of the children, but these investigators don't have to be mental health professionals. Yeah. They could just be anybody who's like, yeah, I'm an evaluator. Mm-hmm. And they're paid, right, uh, up to like maybe 3 k ish $2,700 by the state sometimes, but often, yes, by parents. In Colorado, for example, if parents are willing to pay, say, $30,000, they can appoint a parental responsibility evaluator from a roster of state-approved experts, most of them who do have a master's or doctorate degree in psychology, mm-hmm. so they sound more official. Yeah. You get the you get the, the letters. You get the letters after the expert witness mm-hmm. name. That'll cost you 30 k But if yeah. you don't want the letters, you could probably do it for, like, 3 k That's uh, your discount. That's your discount evaluator, yeah. yes. And these evaluators also have a lot of power and not very much oversight. Uh, elsewhere, there are these reunification camps, is what they are called, and mm-hmm. these are places designed specifically to force children to reconnect or reunify with parents that they have no desire to see, often because the parent has harmed them, but this can also be court-ordered. And this is, uh, I feel like, as we'll talk about this, kind of hooks up to the, like, uh, troubled teen industry. And Definitely. That if, uh, while I was researching this, there was a story that I found where someone had filmed a kid getting into, being forced into a car yeah. by... Um, actually, there's a few of those actually. Yeah, there's the, one in LA. That was the one that I saw, the one that was downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it's dark. It's really really scary. These kids mm-hmm. are terrified for their lives because you have to think about this from the kid's perspective. You live in a home with a person who is violently abusing you. You're mm-hmm. terrified for your life. You finally get the courage to speak up about this. Let's say your mom believes you. Let's say your mm-hmm. mom's like, "I'm gonna get you out of here. We're gonna get you to safety." And You go through this whole process, and in the process, you think, okay, I'm finally going to be safe. And some random adults you don't know in a court setting are like, first of all, your fucking mom's a stupid liar, and you're Mm -hmm. a stupid liar too. And not only are we denying your lived reality, we are going to forcefully abduct you and force you to go spend time with this person who you think might kill you. Mm -hmm. And we're going to force you to pretend like you like it. 
And if you don't, we're going to scream at you. We're going to throw you into a car. We'll see you later. We're going to take your phone away so that you can't call people. Yes, you are stuck. So you came to us, the court, and said, I'm afraid this parent might kill me, maybe, for example. Mm -hmm. And we're going to force you to spend one-on-one time with the person who is your your abuser, Mm -hmm. the person you're most terrified of in the world. This is a very, very scary, scary, violent process Mm -hmm. for these kids. But these reunification camps make a ton of money by telling courts, family courts in particular, oh, you got a problem where mm-hmm. you got this parental alienation case? That's what we handle. We deal with that. You don't know how to deal with that. We do because we're experts. When the reality is these people aren't trained experts at all and they're operating off of bad junk science. Yeah, I mean, the people at a Family Bridge is one of these places, and I think this happens at most of them, they all insist that they are not therapists because they are not qualified to be therapists. They're teachers, and what they're doing is teaching. Right. However, you'll see in court documents, judges mm. still refer to them as doctors, Yeah. and they don't correct them. They'll be like, well, mm-hmm. the doctor said. So everyone thinks this person's a doctor. They're just some fucking quack, mm-hmm. you know? They're just some kooky person just saying bullshit and making money for it. And some states have started to pass laws making these types of reunification camps illegal, but not many. It's just a couple. Mm -hmm. And the two most famous examples of reunification camps in the United States are Turning Points and the one you mentioned, Family Bridges. Mm -hmm. So Turning Points, look, the, the point of these programs on the whole is supposed to be like the family court judges are overburdened. They don't know what they're dealing with. They're not qualified to deal with a difficult situation like this. Luckily, we're specialists in the field, so we can. And that's how they market themselves to judges. This is also, I gotta say... This is like our entire criminal justice system is like, hey, what if we had a private company do it? Yes, it is the privatization of family court. And it really is. So these places will literally go to judges and be like, here's our brochure. Here's what Mm -hmm. we do. And then the judge can go to a family and be like, I am ordering you to pay them $30,000 to fix your broken kid. To yeah. make your kid not say it's being harmed. And and families will have to do this if they want to mm-hmm. be with their children. So court orders, right, will force families to participate in programs like Turning Points. And this will transfer custody cases just to some random person who's running the camp. Private. Totally private. Mm-hmm. This will give a random person at one of these reunification camps who's not qualified at all the power to decide if and when a parent can contact their child regardless of the court's previous custody rulings. So this random person has more power than a court. And that's Mm -hmm. how you end up in these situations where you have court saying, this man abused this child. Mm -hmm. And then still, you'll have some random person at a reunification camp being like, "Uh uh-uh, guess what? That man who abused that child didn't really abuse the child because we said so. And the child has to live with that man and is never allowed to talk to their mom again. Yeah, and that actually, they, like, in a few cases I've read, like, they will continue to, like, extend the no contact with the quote-unquote alienating parent or whatever. It's usually 90 days to start. Yeah, but then they just keep re-upping it. Yeah, exactly. So this transfer of power generally lasts from the time the court order is issued until the camp director determines the treatment has been successful, which, like you said, could Mm -hmm. be 90 days, could be a year, it could could be be three three years. Yeah. Yeah. You have no control. So Mm. Turning Points is actually formally called Turning Points for Families. And it was founded by this New York-based social worker named Linda Gottlieb. Mm -hmm. And she describes the intervention as a therapeutic vacation. (laughs) It is not. It is not a therapeutic vacation. I think that's pretty safe to say. Yeah. So she told ProPublica that she created Turning Points at the request of lawyers whose clients were seeking intensive treatment for alienation. And she's like, soon it just blossomed into multiple locations. Mm -hmm. So Gottlieb's foundational ideology is that children lie. 
this is her main belief. She's like, children lie. Uh, but she's like, they lie about everything all the time. This is, I, like, you, I feel this way about, Gar- like, obviously Gardner sounds like a real creep, a weird guy to be around. Oh, would you say your creepometer goes off on him? Yeah, I have my creepometer bonus episode. Bonus episode yeah. uh, but Gottlieb's thing is, like, her basic vibe is just, that's, like, the dumbest ideology or dumbest way of rationalizing anything, and it's like, you have to be thinking a little harder. Yeah, she just really hates kids, I think. Yeah. So here's a quote from her. She says, everyone knows children lie. Lying is so instinctual. Children love to make up stories. Why on earth do we believe that children are reporting accurately? And at first glance, this might make sense to someone. After all, again, wasn't the satanic panic of the 1980s based on children being coached to lie about gay people and goths sexually abusing them, right? Mm -hmm. That was bad. That was real. But this outlook denies the fact that there is often evidence in custody cases alleging abuse against a parent that exists outside of a child's testimony, which if you listen to our bonus episode, you heard a lot of things like medical records, police reports, eyewitness Mm -hmm. testimonies, including other parents. Yeah, but also teachers and neighbors. And in 2023, Turning Points, right, had all these different locations everywhere. And one of them was in Texas. And it was literally just run by this woman, Loretta Moss, with like, maybe it was Massey, it's M-A-A-S-E. I was... I don't know how to say that. Yeah. You can say whatever. We'll call her Mace. And she had no mm-hmm. training. She's not a trained psychiatrist. She's not a trained mental health professional. She doesn't know if a kid is quote unquote lying or not. And also like the thing about kids lying is that I, I think I said this in the bonus episode. Maybe I said it at the top of this one. There is a big difference mm-hmm. between somebody implanting a false memory in your head. Like, when Mm -hmm. we talk about the satanic panic, kids were like, I went to preschool today, and their mom's like, and something bad happened, right? And then the police are like, right, this person maybe touched you, and the kid's like, I want to please my parents and the cop, who's an authority figure. So, yeah, sure, that happened. And then they're like, what else? And then they're like, and then I was a, a big man in a hood? And the parents are like, yeah. So, like... That's what we see when children lie in this kind of institutional setting. What we don't see children lying is children being like, hey, this really specific thing happened to Mm -hmm. me that I am repeating over and over again consistently and telling you for years on end, and other people have witnessed corroborating evidence as well. I'll also say the children lie thing, and this is so much of this, is like it takes something that is like sort of trivially true and is like kind of not a big deal, like, you know... I, like, I have a friend who's got some kids, and they tell funny stories that are like, oh, that's made up. You're six. Yeah. Or, like, it's fine. And then they're like, children lie about this small thing that is obvious and transparent. Right. Clearly, they're also lying about sexual abuse. Or abuse. Or what, you know, where it's like, you took a little thing that's kid, mm-hmm. and you were just like, every, you, and then you took like a big important thing. Right. And you are like... Same thing. Same thing, right. Mm-hmm. Which also many kids don't even know. Like, I would not have known yeah. to, to lie about that because I did mm-hmm. not experience that. So it was not even on my radar as something to talk about, which is why a lot of teachers, for example, mm-hmm. parents get concerned when kids have information about sexuality that seems to be more mm-hmm. mature than their age because it, they're like, oh, my God, where did my child get this yeah. from? You know? So... You know, that's not me being scientific. I'm sure some children come up with mm-hmm. things on their own or see things in a way that doesn't necessarily mean they're being, like, harmed. But just this idea that that any any kid who tells you something bad happened to them is lying, that needs to be assessed a little. That needs to be yeah. looked at and evaluated more seriously is the point of that. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, this woman, Loretta Mace is what I'm going to call her. She was trained firsthand by Gottlieb. She's not a mental health professional, but she is being granted the power of the court in this situation, basically. Mm -hmm. Remember, kids are getting turned over to Turning Points, Texas. That's her branch that she's in charge of from the court. And they are, she, she herself is having more power than a judge in this situation to decide if you ever get to see your kid again. Yeah. You got to keep this chick happy. This chick you know nothing about who's absolutely zany and Mm -hmm. kooky and has a weird belief system founded on a man who thinks that kids and women are all actually secretly asking for it. Mm -hmm. So she will do things like not just her, all of the turning points, you know, under Gottlieb's kind of guidance, will force the alienating parents to write letters of apology to their kids under court order if they ever want to see them again. They have to be approved. Like, the one in Texas had to be approved by Mace. And usually the goal was to explicitly and convincingly, those are the words, disabuse the children of their quote-unquote false beliefs about their father. Can, can you imagine... You know, your your kid is being abused. You finally get everything taken care of. And then, like, this alienation thing. The kid is taken off to some random-ass camp in Texas. And also, a lot of this is, like, out of state. There were cases of people from, like, New Jersey flying to California. Utah for... going to Texas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Transported um, across state lines. So, all of a sudden, your kid, like, you live in New Jersey or whatever. Your kid's in Texas. And you have to just go write a letter that this random lady that you don't know who's not qualified yeah it approves of telling your kid that like you lied to them about their abuse right you gotta be like hey i know that you said that your dad hurt you he didn't and you only said that because i am such a bad person that i lied to you and made you think so and it's, like, so re-traumatizing for these kids. It's so mm-hmm. horrifying for these parents. And it probably feels like such a betrayal as a parent. Yeah. It's just... And if you ever want to see your kid again, you have to do this. And then you write this letter. Mm-hmm. You give it to Mace. And she's like, no, it's not good enough. I think there's secret messages in here to your child. you got to mm-hmm. write it again. So it's, like, this impossibly high standard that they set at these places. And you have to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it if you ever want to see your kid again. And then, obviously, now there's all of this written evidence... Yes. You've written letters. You're saying that you're a liar. Yeah. You put it in paper and pen. You mm-hmm. signed it saying that you were a big liar and that their, their dad did nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. And on the court's part, sometimes these judicial commissioners who assign kids to attend these kind of reunification camps, they don't even know how they work. They don't even understand. Like, they think they're doctors. They don't, they don't know what's going on. And meanwhile, families have to pay, yes, these huge amounts of money. Like Turning Points, Texas, for example, during uh, one assessment cost $15,000 for four days. Mm-hmm. And it's weird. It's like, what are you even paying for? Because first of all, Mace usually runs these reunification camps, quote unquote, just in private vacation rentals. Oh, no, this is one of the things that we'll get to. But in uh, one of the other testimonies, <laughs> the girls was like, who was taken to one of these things was like, yeah, it was super weird because it was like, I'm not going to say it was as bad as like a Motel 6, but it was definitely sub Marriott. We're talking the best Western. Yeah. Yes. This is like. Yeah. This is such a racket being run. So for example, Turning Points, Texas, the mailing address is a PO box in an Austin, Texas strip mall. So they don't have facilities of their own. So this $15,000 is going Mm -hmm. to these few people and they're just raking in the cash. And Mace 
constantly referred to as a doctor by judges in court documents all the time. Doctor, doctor, doctor. doctor. Not a doctor. Mm -hmm. She is a licensed professional counselor with a master's degree in counseling and family therapy, but that's not a doctor, first of all. And she's legally not allowed to provide psychological or medical services or advertise herself as having done some, according to the executive director of the Texas Behavioral Health Executive Council. To be fair, she is not providing any of that. She's providing torture. She is just torturing the children. You're Mm -hmm. absolutely right. You apparently don't need to be credentialed to torture children on behalf of the state. Mm -hmm. So Mesa's techniques in Texas include, for example, if you go to one of these uh, playing recordings of parents' domestic violence disputes in front of their children, Mm -hmm. uh, instructing adults to physically coerce children into the treatment, withholding food from children, removing clothing, bedding, hygienic items from children, telling kids that if they don't participate, uh, they're going to go to jail. They're never going to see the parent they like again. Mm-hmm. And parents and participants have all described these places as just brainwashing camps that reported using physically, like, aggressive mm-hmm. means to coerce children into participating in these things they didn't want to do. Sometimes just, like, physically attacking kids to the extent that medical reports show, like, marks left on their bodies. Mm-hmm. Like, in spring of 2022, one 13-year-old girl got so distressed at one of these camps during a session with Gottlieb at a hotel that she started banging her head on a wall, screaming for help. These are according to court papers. Someone called the police, and then they brought her to a hospital for psychiatric evaluation. And the whole time she was just like, I just want my mom. I just want my mom. But under Mm -hmm. the court order, she wasn't allowed to call her, and she was held at the hospital for three days. Because they do these, like, 90-day no-contact rules where you can't talk to the parent you like. Because it's supposed to deprogram you, but really what we know is it is programming you. Mm -hmm. And not very efficiently. One 16-year-old participant at Turning Points in New York reported being assaulted and thrown in a closet. He eventually ended up escaping through a window. Another child reported that when they attended Turning Points, it was just held at Linda Gottlieb's house in Hudson Valley. And the whole time, they could just watch her husband sitting in a recliner watching TV in the living room. That's the... So you're just in this random lady's house getting abused and screamed at? Like, and there's, like, a guy in, like, I have to imagine, like, a barca lounger. Yes, exactly. Right. Probably in his boxers just watching TV, and the court is forcing you to do this and pay, like, $30,000 for it so and, if you ever want to see your kid again. Yeah, and so, like, and the judges are saying things like, well, if you want this, you, you maybe uh, take out a second mortgage, maybe sell your house. For this. Yeah. For this to happen to your child. Yeah. And in 2016, uh, we've got this one case where Judge Janelle Ostrowski transferred two brothers to their father's custody and ordered all of them to go to treatment at turning points because, mm-hmm. you know, both boys were like Ostrowski, to Ostrowski, the judge, they were like, our father, Michael D., yells at us all the time and we're afraid of him, right? Mm-hmm. So obviously Michael D. was like, they are, they're, they've been manipulated, and I'm a victim of parental alienation. Their mom did this to them. So the judge was like, yep, sounds correct and very, very real and not at all like a thing a weird, creepy, pedophilic rapist uh, came mm-hmm. up with. So the nine-year-old is like, I do not feel safe at my dad's house. The 14-year-old's like, I am straight up not going there. And, you know, realistically, any court case should have looked into Michael and been like, maybe there's something to these kids being terrified to go there. Mm -hmm. Michael had pled guilty several years prior to indecent exposure for an incident in a public park involving his 14-year-old child. He also had been found by the state's child uh, welfare agency to have emotionally abused that same, same son. But during divorce proceedings, Michael, yes, claimed the boy's mother was doing parental alienation on him, right? And the custody evaluator, 
backed him up. Remember, it doesn't have to be a trained professional yeah. at all, just somebody who shows up and makes three grand. Gottlieb was the person that uh, these kids were sent to because they, they were sent to turning points. And Gottlieb forced the boy's mother, Kelly, to write and rewrite those detailed letters about how she lied regarding mm-hmm. their father. She poisoned uh, them against him against them. I don't know what's the wording of that. Poisoned their father against them? Poisoned them against their father. Yeah. Yeah. The judge forced her to also find a therapist for the boys to go to that was approved by Gottlieb to support Michael's relationship. So presumably with someone with whom Gottlieb has like some kind of business deal. Probably a business yeah. arrangement, yes. Uh, and then the kids returned home after the going to this Turning Points camp to go live with Michael and not talk mm-hmm. to their mom for 90 days. And they were miserable. And Kelly was like, Gottlieb was basically given, quote, the authority of a god. This random woman, not elected, not appointed. A judge gets appointed, right? You get to vote for people. Yeah. And and Gottlieb's just some lady. Yeah, this is, I mean, the thing that you, I feel like this happens in so many industries, be it like um, addiction stuff, like court-ordered uh, addiction therapy or whatever, uh, or prison system where it's just like, we need to stop believing that these people are professionals. They're just some guys. They're it's, just some people. It's just some people, and they're trying mm-hmm. to make money. And that's yeah. the thing about the privatization system. Mm-hmm. Um, so this happens. Kelly's not allowed to see her kids. Michael got custody of them. Shortly after the kids return home, the kids are miserable, right? Michael's second wife ends up obtaining a domestic violence restraining order uh, because she said to a judge that Michael threatened to set her on fire. So we see that... All of the abuse that the kids are like, I don't feel safe here, I don't feel safe here. His second wife is like, I don't feel safe here either. This is not a safe person to be around. I mean, she's alienating someone. She doesn't, I don't know who. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, early the next year after this happened, the oldest son, who was then 17, ran away. And Ostrowski, the judge, finally had to admit that this had all been a failure and allow him to just return home to his mom, which is all he wanted the whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. So the second example of another one of these prominent types of camps is called Family Bridges. And this is the one you talked about that's based in the Bay Area. Yeah. And this was founded by... Pause. For the name. The name is just... Randy Rand. Randy Rand is this man's name. Also, when I was Googling him, I had... Apparently, there was a guy who was in a hair metal band, also named Randy Rand, and I kept getting... Randy Rand. Maybe it's the same guy. No, it's not the same guy. Mm, I, I look at... It would rock. Not... Literally, literally. But just for the sake of the bit. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, Randy Rand's such a good name. Uh, really good name, really bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2009, Rand deactivated his psychology license after the California Board of Psychology found that he had committed professional violations, including dishonesty, repeated negligent acts, and gross negligence. And this is why he always refers to himself as a teacher. Yes. This is, is the guy who really popularized that not a doctor, not a therapist, uh, not a psychiatrist or psychologist, just a teacher. Though I will say, here's the thing, like, again, my family is all educators. Cred- there, are, there is a severe credentialing process that you gotta go through to actually, like, to be a teacher. This guy's like a charter school teacher. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. the equivalent of that. You show up and say you can do it and someone mm-hmm. believes in you. Uh, so... This is apparently common for alienation experts. Some of them do start off as mental health professionals, and yeah. then everyone's just like, what the fuck are you doing? And they lose any 
you know, licensing they have because mm-hmm. it's so bad what they're doing. So two other psychologists who've led Family Bridges workshops, Jane Schatz of California mm-hmm. and Joanne Murphy of Texas, also have both been sanctioned. Schatz after an uh, allegation of negligence and Murphy after a finding that she failed to respond promptly to a subpoena. So they're just kind of fucking around. Mm-hmm. And in 2001... This guy who really is, like, the guy who took Gardner's beliefs, like, brought them into the new millennium. Yeah, actually, I, it was funny when we were researching this, like, the first thing that came up on, like, JSTOR or whatever was one of these guys, this guy's articles. And I got, like, about, like, I want to say halfway through before I was like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Yeah, it's a real weird guy. His name is Richard Warshak. <laughs> and he is a clinical professor of psychology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And in 2001, he published something that doesn't at all sound like he's got a personal issue. It's called Divorce Poison, Protecting the Parent-Slash-Child Bond from a Vindictive Ex. That, I have to imagine, you just wrote a book. There was some marketing that went into figuring out how to do the title. There was a conversation with with your, your publisher, publisher yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I really wa- I would have loved to be a fly in the wa- on the wall for that conversation with whatever publisher Richard Warshak has. Yeah. Well, I know what publisher it is. Mm-hmm. It was HarperCollins. Uh, and this book revived a lot of Gardner's ideas, but kind of sanitized them to mm-hmm. make them less overtly misogynistic. This is the guy who's really responsible for this. He sanitized these ideas so well, actually, that it brought parental alienation theory to a bigger audience because it made it more palatable. Mm -hmm. So unlike Gardner, Warshak spoke of alienation in gender-neutral terms, saying many fathers uh, were programmed too. He likened into the no-contact period between children and their preferred parent to study abroad. It's like, just like you would do study abroad to send your kid off to become more independent, you're going to do 90 days where you just don't talk to them, and that is good for them. In a hotel... That is, like, sub-Marriott. Yeah, at a Best Western-ish with Randy yeah. Rand, a guy who is not a licensed medical professional. And there might be a guy in a barca lounge or watching TV. I know, that would be at Gottlieb's. Well, okay, yeah, I feel... turning yeah, yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Family Bridges, we do things a little bit differently. Uh, we got the Randy Rand approach, not yeah. the Gottlieb approach. Uh, but it's not that different. Spoiler mm-hmm. alert. And his approach actually made the theory sound more scientific than it was. Mm-hmm. And people really had this like renewed interest in it because of him. So he started leading workshops for Family Bridges around 2005. And lots of people were like, yeah, he kind of just became their spokesperson. Like he mm-hmm. became the face of it. Even though he didn't start it, Randy yeah. Rand did. He became like the guy who lent it some air of legitimacy, I guess. Mm-hmm. So Family Bridges has this policy, right? They they won't take anyone unless they have been court ordered there. Right. Yeah, that's Which, like interesting. I mean, I th- I feel like the this is this is theater for them. It gives them legitimacy. Yes, right? just like the Richard Warshak. They're yeah. Like, no, no, no. We're the real deal. Yeah. Um. There was I did find in one of the cases. I think it was Judge Easterman. Uh-huh. Uh Was and I I don't think I have the direct quote, but he was describing to his children or to the kids who were about to be sent there. And it was like, your mom can't help you. Your dad can't help you. I can send you wherever the fuck I want. You have to go. I'm sending you to this place. I can send you also. And this is the thing is that uh, Family Bridges works with a lot of like troubled teen wilderness camp people. So it's that's like the threat at the end. Like if Family Bridges doesn't work, you're on a farm 
out in like Colorado or whatever. Right, you're part of the troubled teen industry. And they do mm-hmm. conflate these things a lot because the idea is that you kids, you're just problems. You don't yeah. appreciate everything your dad does for you. Your yeah. dad is doing all these awesome things for you, like paying feeding you support. food and paying child support. And you are just being an ungrateful, selfish brat mm-hmm. because you're a bad kid. So there really is this idea underlying all of it. Yeah. So at Family Bridges, like um, at Turning Point, they have a no contact order for 90 days with the parent that the kids like. No, you can't mm-hmm. talk to them for 90 days. This program is going to cost anywhere between twenty to $25,000 for its first segment. Mm-hmm. And generally, that's going to mean the kids are going through a workshop at a hotel with the, with the parent they hate who probably abuses them. The workshop sounds like it's like they're made to sit in like a semicircle and watch these like videos of like, so you've been alienated. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So it's a four day workshop. Mm-hmm. Also, it just because it starts at like twenty twenty five thousand dollars it can go up to $100,000. That doesn't mean that's its only cost. This is like, how up against the wall are you and how deep is your bank account? Exactly. This is really like a scam. So Mm -hmm. in 2016, for example, one family from Seattle paid over $27,000 to Family Bridges and then another $3,500 to spend three nights at a Sheraton in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And the children opposed the intervention. So they also had to spend $8,300 on a company that was hired to transport them forcefully. Oh, that's the other thing. This is the videos of the kids being, like, forced into some car. And, but like, it's always... Again, you think when you hear about this, if you don't know anything about it, that, like, some... Not that this is better. Some cop is doing it. Right. It's not better, but you would think it has at least legitimacy. It's, yeah, it's We're talking like, about the air of legitimacy. These places have no legitimacy. And it, it's just, like... Some assholes shoving a kid into a minivan on, like, Figueroa or whatever in downtown. Yeah. Yes. It's state-sanctioned kidnapping. Yeah. And Randy Rand and the other counselors there who, yes, are not therapists, but say that they are teachers instead, um, you know, because they have to say that because they have psychologically dubious and often abusive behavior, which does include threats to send, as you mentioned, uncooperative kids to those wilderness troubled teen camps, Mm -hmm. they don't have to meet any accepted standards or practices. And that's why they call themselves teachers. There's absolutely no credentialing. There's no standards. They are like little gods of their own little world. This is a fit. Again, my sister, uh, high school social studies teacher, credentialed to the end of the earth. This is offensive to people who are damn teachers. We're actually teachers. Both your parents, also teachers. Also teachers. Yes. Uh, Rules at Family Bridges, once you're there, include, for example, that you are never allowed to talk about what happened before. It's called a moratorium on the past. So you just can't talk about it. Whatever your parent did, you could be sitting next to a man who literally almost killed you. Your Mm -hmm. your father who literally almost killed you, you are not allowed to bring it up. And when they're like, why do you hate your dad so much? You just have to say, my mom told me to. Yeah, you can't be like, because he literally tried Mm -hmm. to fucking kill me. No, you're not allowed to say that. So one 16-year-old, Allie, said that she and her 14-year-old sister defied this rule. And Mm -hmm. they told Rand and his colleagues that their dad abused them. And the girls were told that if they didn't comply, they would be separated, sent to wilderness camps, committed to psychiatric facilities, and cut off from their mom for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, lots of, like you said, the Family Bridges Workshop just means sitting there and watching and discussing these weird promotional videos they make themselves. And one of them, called uh, Welcome Back Pluto, tells a fictional story of a petulant teenager who scorns her father. If you're alienated like Emily, you might get mad when others don't take your complaints seriously, says this narrator's voice. 
In time, however, Emily learned to see things more clearly, and she realized her complaints were exaggerated. The narrator's explaining this, right? And sounded just like her mother's. God forbid two people encounter this man and both hate him. No, no, no. That's impossible. That's impossible. I've never heard of that. And this video was scripted by that guy, Richard Warshak, who wrote the book about the vindictive ex that Mm -hmm. revived all this interest in Gardner's weird fucking creepy ideas. And workshops also will warn children actively against trusting their memories. Like Allie said, she was shown this 2013 TED Talk by Elizabeth Loftus, who's a psychologist who developed the idea that memory is malleable. She didn't develop it, develop it on her Mm -hmm. own, but she works with it. And who served as defense in high-profile trials, and you cannot make this shit up, including Harvey Weinstein's. I... Okay, see, here's the thing. All of these people don't have, like, credentials that mean anything. But I want to know what the conference looks like. They all get together, you know, at, like, a double tree to have martinis, and it's just all these assholes. Yeah, all these assholes who are just like, how do we defend evil men? Ha ha. Um, And also, so what she's talking about, she's like, look, memories are often contaminated by outside influences, right? Which could be true. Our memories are not perfect. Our recall is not perfect. But she's like, yeah, and then when you don't remember things right, it leads to false accusations that ruin people's lives. Which, like, okay, there's a big jump between these two No, this is the thing where it's always, like, that's trivially true. Yeah. But it'll be like, I don't remember if my socks were red and purple. I remember somebody Mm -hmm. violently harming me. No, I'm sorry, Madeline. If you don't remember the color of your socks, how can I trust anything? Yeah, you say? exactly. Um, yeah, so I do. I think this is really interesting because I am personally very interested in the satanic panic and false memories and the memory wars. So it is true, yes, that your brain is not a video camera. Um, you know, you and I deal with this a lot because we've known each other a long time. Yeah. So you and I have experienced a lot of things together, and I'll be like, I remember it this way, and you'll be like, That's not how it happened at all. And mm-hmm. we'll, like, try to get to the truth of what happened together somewhere. And we're both probably wrong. The truth is... I feel like usually what happens is that, right, what, 22 years have intervened? Yeah. Um, we can get pretty close. Shit, like, I, I you actually were like, I, di- I didn't know you didn't have a car until you were 18. Yeah, yeah. That fucking blew your mind. That blew my mind. In my head, you had a car when you were 16, when nope. I met you. Um, and I think, right, like, this is the sort of, like, thing about epistemology or the past or, like, how we know what is true and shit like that is that you kind of triangulate it, you try to figure it out, you kind of have to acknowledge that it's imperfect. Yes. Right. I went through this when I wrote my book, actually. Mm -hmm. I was really hung up on the fact that I was going to remember something wrong when I wrote my book about my life and it was going to be a disservice in particular to my family. Mm -hmm. And... I remember there were parts that I had you read that I was like, does this feel real? And you were like, this feels real. And then there Mm -hmm. were parts about like when I started my business with, I had a business partner originally the first Mm -hmm. year I had my business. I sent the chapter about starting my business to her. And I was like, does this feel like what happened to you? And she was like, yeah. And she just changed one thing I had misremembered about her specifically. It was a really Mm -hmm. small line. I wrote about Camilla, who Mm -hmm. was my assistant for many years. Yeah. And I, I made her read it. I was like, does this feel like correct to you? And she was like, yeah. You know, so... I had to do this a lot, but I remember I was still so hung up on the fact that it wasn't going to be 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. And I told my publisher, and she's like, well, it's a it's a memoir. It's your story. It's how you remember it. And 
nobody's is a hundred because at the beginning I wanted to add a whole disclaimer like I don't know how accurate this is this is just what I think happened and she was like that's mm-hmm. a memoir is in, intrinsically just I mean, your memory you're not James Frey or whatever who's that that's the I think it's a million little pieces that like drug addiction memoir that was really popular and on Oprah's book club and then it turned out to all be bullshit oh uh, yeah it, I, I think about Shin Dong Hyuk he mm-hmm. was a North Korea defector who wrote the book that encouraged the UN to sanction North oh, Korea. Interesting. And then later he came out mm-hmm. and was like, yeah, I lied, like, in that whole book. Yeah, and yeah. it's, right, like, there's a difference between, like, I'm maliciously lying or, like, lying on purpose. Yeah. And, like... Since we're talking about parents, though, and parental mm-hmm. abuse, I think one thing, the reason why I get so hung mm-hmm. up on this is because no matter what I believe, my mom was always like, well, you're remembering it wrong. It didn't happen yeah. like that. I don't remember that. So it just made me always second guess myself so much. So I think that it's this idea of what you remember is interesting because it, it it is true that we can't remember everything perfectly. But again, it usually works the opposite way of how these assholes are using it. You usually, like, if, if, if it's a fake memory, what would happen is you would not remember event occurring at all. You'd be like, no, mm-hmm. it didn't happen. And then someone would be like, I think it did, though. Remember this? And they Mm -hmm. would lead you, and they would give you some prompts, and it would implant a false memory into your mind. Like, this is something, like, memory research psychologists are able to do. They're able to create false memories in people's minds by leading them and telling them stories until eventually they're like, yeah, I guess that must have Mm -hmm. happened. The way false memories work is not that you remember something very clearly happening to you that was traumatic and horrifying that you wish you could forget but you can't, and everyone around you just gaslights you into thinking it never happened. That is not how a false memory works. Yeah, and I, like, in so many ways, even, um, like, uh, what's her name, Joan Meyer? Yeah. Like, there's this point where she's, like, at when she's writing her conclusion where she's, like, look, divorce is messy. Sometimes divorces are messy. Right? Yeah. And, like, people say things, like, pe- like no one is saying that, that like, kids might have, like, a bad relationship with their dad or their mom who isn't, like, a terrible person, but they're, they're just teenagers and that's how it's going down right now. Yeah. Um, but her thing is, it's a transient phenomenon. Kids get over it. Kids sort of, like, if if it's really nothing, right? Yeah. They'll grow up. They'll be like, oh, I was just being an asshole. Dad told me to clean my room and I didn't want to. Right. Whatever bullshit. But, like, all of this parental alienation stuff, however you gussy it up, it takes something that's trivially whatever, true. Sometimes people misremember things. You know, like, sometimes kids hate their parents for, like, silly reasons. And then it's like, so abuse is okay. Yes. And that's or, or like, fake. It's or either fake. It happened and it's okay, or it didn't mm. happen and it's fake. And that's the thing that, like, was so infuriating reading about all of this was just, like... You take you take the like simple true thing, and then you make something real fucking dumb out of it. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really really harmful. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, this thing that you were talking about about like how kids are literally kidnapped and forced mm-hmm. to go do this horrible thing. Like in twenty twenty two, two children, Orin and Camille, were yes forced into a car against their will by Right Direction Crisis Intervention to be taken to mm-hmm. Building Family Bridges by Los Angeles Judge Diana Gold Saltman. That's right here where we live. Mm-hmm. A third child, Wolf. Uh, was transported to the program separately. All, and this happened while this ch- their children's mother, Brody, was ordered to remain in the courtroom and not intervene. And Brody was a victim of domestic violence, and she had been granted a three-year restraining order against her ex-husband, Josh. Mm-hmm. 
Camille had also been granted a restraining order against Josh, her father, which was active on the day that they were forced into a car to go to this facility and reunify with her father that she had an active mm-hmm. restraining order against. And that's what we mean when we say these private places were able to operate at a level that makes them, like, it supersedes the court mm-hmm. system. They're higher than the U.S. law, these places. This is, I, it feels like a weird libertarian mm-hmm. fever dream to just be like, no, the law, the law, whatever. The law is what family, like, Randy Rand makes is up the, the law. law. Yes, yes. I don't want to live in that world. Gottlieb is law, yes. And so, yeah, despite the evidence of domestic abuse, Josh claimed mm-hmm. parental alienation, and suddenly... The law's no longer the law. Yeah. Randy rants the law, like you said, and the kids are taken to family bridges and forced to be with this man that was so mm-hmm. violent that they had they a restraining, had restraining order. order. And again, yeah. I don't know if any of you listening have ever tried to get a restraining order. Not it's easy. It's hard. It's hard. There has to be a lot of evidence. One, that the person has intention to kill you or harm you, and two, that they are able to. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, this is wild. So, and it's not great that it takes that much work, I will say, but mm-hmm. the fact that it takes that much work when I hear, like, this daughter got a restraining order against her dad. A court issued that. And still, they were able to say, no, 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 this is fake. So, whatever. I think an important takeaway from all of this, too, is just how complicit, like, the police and CPS are. Yeah. Yeah, like, other areas of the judicial arm of our government maintain kind of the legitimacy of parental alienation syndrome, right? Like, mm-hmm. the police, child welfare agencies of the state. And this is why we say CPS are cops, too, because they reinforce these bullshit ideas at the state level. Like, despite it being widely debunked, in 2020, the Colorado State Supreme Court ruled that parental alienation is a form of child endangerment. That's so... I don't even... How do you rule on that? Because it's like, that's not... Yeah, they got a whole ruling. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a Colorado custody case, state child welfare agencies decided not to investigate dozens of reports by mandatory reporters who expressed concern that a child was being physically and sexually abused by his father. Authorities appeared to believe that the child instead had been manipulated by his mother to report the abuse so she could gain custody in the dispute. And the court also agreed that the mother's contact, yes, met the definition of alienation. Yeah. So it's like this whole, the whole judicial system is conspiring to support this weird, creepy pedophiles bullshit from the 80s. Which some other weird guys who might lock you in the closet of a Best Western are profiting massively on. Yes. And like, right, again, it's that thing where they farm out, like... They farm out, like, our weird assumptions about what is right and what sort of, like, normative things should happen in the world. Which right. is, like, to these, like, weird-ass private corporations. That's the companies, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So I have some examples. Um, if you listen to our bonus episode on the Patreon, it's the it's the wildest example I found, um, just because we have so much info on it. But I have some examples here I wanted to give people to really get an understanding of what this looks like in individual families, because it's mm-hmm. horrifying. Like, you hear it abstractly, and you're like, oh, this is bad. And then you hear about these people's lives in a really mm-hmm. specific way and how it interacts with them. And you really understand just how, one, the overreach of the state, mm-hmm. right? And like, to the 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 fear, the terror that these children and these women are experiencing mm-hmm. being forced to interact with their abusers in this way. So like one famous case um, that lots of people heard about through TikTok actually is this case of the Larson family in Utah. Did you ever hear about this? Oh, you're not on TikTok yes, really. No. Yeah. So there's these siblings, Ty and Brinley, 
and they went viral on TikTok. Uh, they had accused their father of sexually abusing them. Reports came to light as early as age seven for Brinley and 11 for Ty. And their father's attorney argued that the children's mother was brainwashing them to believe their father had abused him, but he was actually innocent. Uh, but the abuse was substantiated by state authorities in 2018. Like in 2018, mm -hmm. Utah's Division of Child and Family Services found that their father, Brent Joel Larson, had, yes, sexually and emotionally abused his children. Investigators categorized the abuse as severe and chronic, and the findings led to Larson's parenting time being restricted to just a handful of supervised monthly visits, as well as a 150-day restraining order that prohibited him from having any other contact with the children. Ty also reported that his father threatened to kill both him and Brinley and their mom if they told anybody about the abuse. So as a result, yeah, the court official restricts the father's visit, visits, and they're not allowed to be, you know, with their mm -hmm. dad, just on their own, but in early 2023, even while there's an ongoing criminal investigation into him, a judge agreed with the uh, Larson's lawyer that the children's mother, who was named Jessica Zart, was alienating the minors. And this judge just forget the restraining order, forget the fact that the abuse has been proven. This judge just agrees with this random lawyer that the mom probably lied because yeah, we all know that. that's what women do mm -hmm. and authorized police to take the children from the mother's house and put them in the custody of their father. Uh, and in his order, the judge didn't even mention the previous findings of abuse against the father. Mm -hmm. He was like, not relevant, probably fake, even though multiple people had already proved yeah. it happened. So the siblings were like, absolutely not. We're not going with that man. He wants to kill us and he hurts us. So they barricaded themselves in a bedroom in their mother's house. They like put wood across mm -hmm. the thing. Um, and they started live streaming on TikTok for a month to call it attention mm -hmm. to the judge. Wait, were they orders. in the room the whole month? The whole okay. month. And what they did is next door to the room was a bathroom mm -hmm. and they barricaded the door to the bathroom too, but they cut a hole in the wall so they could use the bathroom. Oh, okay. And their mother would come talk to them through the door and mm -hmm. you know it was really extreme so they were live streaming on tiktok to be like the state is trying to kidnap us and force us to go stay with this man who wants to harm and kill us basically mm -hmm. the judge then authorized police to use force to gain entry into the locked room and said that the kid's mom was messing up because the kid's mom was trying to provide them with food uh, uh -huh. while they were barricaded in the room. Oh, so she's supposed to starve them out exactly yeah. just like they are gonna die if they don't eat what do you mean and on TikTok, Ty was talking about this and said, my own word does not matter. They don't believe my truth. The court system isn't trying to save us. Nobody is trying to keep us safe. I am the one that's going to have to choose my own safety. Mm -hmm. The judge on the case obviously blamed Zart for the kid's refusal to see their father, found her in contempt of court, and ordered her to be jailed for five days. And after two months of these kids staying barricaded in this room, the judge finally suspended the order and allowed the kids to just live with their mom. Mm -hmm. There's also Alina Asensio. Mm -hmm. So in 2020, 14-year-old Alina had a restraining order in place against her father after he was charged with felony child abuse and pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault. The previous year, what had happened is her father grabbed her from behind by her necklace and the hood of her hoodie and dragged her up a flight of stairs. But while this was happening, she was basically being strangled to death by, by her, necklace. her necklace. Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, she couldn't breathe. She was telling her dad she couldn't breathe. She was left with a burst blood vessel in Jesus. her eyelids, a huge cut from ear to ear where her necklace had dug into her mm -hmm. neck. And this is according to a police report. This was documented. A child welfare investigator described the resulting scar as a ligature mark, the imprint left after strangulation. That's uh -huh. how severe it was. In 2020, she had been a child in the middle of a custody case when the mm -hmm. year this happened. But Mark Kilmer, uh, oddly enough, so mm -hmm. random, 
Val Kilmer? Val Kilmer's brother. The actor uh-huh. Val Kilmer's brother happened to be the Colorado Parental Responsibility Evaluator appointed to her case. He was not interested in hearing about the incident where she was strangled and had the ligature mark and it that had led mm-hmm. to her dad getting a restraining order against him, right? Yeah. He didn't care. So this is what we mean where we're like these random single people mm-hmm. with their own agenda can show up and ruin your fucking life. Yep. So Kilmer asks, if you love your dad, why aren't you going to therapy with him? And Alina's like, well, he tried to fucking kill me. Uh, which she's like, and I'm kind of surprised you didn't bring it up first because it's very well documented <laughs> that he tried to fucking kill me and there's a restraining order against him and I have a giant scar on my neck from him trying to fucking kill me, right? Mm-hmm. So she says it in her words, though. She explains it. And then she says, I still feel my dad's hands around my neck sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elena says after she told Val Kilmer's fucking brother this, so wild, uh, Kilmer just kind of stares at her blankly. Uh, and then she's like, okay, I'm going to tell you more reasons. So she tells him other instances of abuse and violence she endured at the hands of her father. And he just doesn't respond. And when you know about this guy, it makes sense that he doesn't respond because he proudly boasts that based on his own experiences, not science, not evidence, just what he's mm-hmm. experienced, he does not believe about 90% of the abuse allegations he encounters in his work. Which that's, is interesting because that's the same figure Gardner used. That seems like, I feel like 90%, I'm just going to say, this is if you're 90% of the time that you're making up fake statistics, yes. you're saying 90%. You're saying 90%. And also, it's like, your job is literally to protect children from being yeah. killed. And you're looking at a girl who has a ligature mark around her neck and a restraining order that the that has been validated by multiple other arms of the state. And you're like, nah, I don't think so. I think I know better than all of these people. And mm-hmm. I think that you're lying. So when you look at these people, when you're like, these people have their own fucking agendas. The same reason we had to talk about Gardner's weird pedophile shit. Mm-hmm. We also have to talk about Kilmer. Kilmer herself, shocker has been charged with domestic violence. Yeah. No. Yeah, I know. Shocking, right? Uh, in fact, after a 2006 incident, his then-wife says he pushed her to the bathroom floor, according to police reports, like, and harmed her. Then following the incident, his wife obtained a restraining order against him. So it must have been a pr- pretty bad situation. Mm-hmm. And he was then required by the court to give up all of his guns pending resolution of the criminal charges. Mm-hmm. He pleaded guilty to harassment and, in a separate divorce proceeding, temporarily lost decision-making power over his children because there were concerns about how he was parenting. The court placed him on probation for 24 months while he completed domestic violence counseling, and after he completed probation, the court then finally dismissed the assault charge. This man, who was not allowed to be around his children for 24 months while he completed domestic violence counseling because everyone was concerned about his parenting, this is the man that decides your children's fate and safety at the hands of being abused by a parent. Listen, this is just, this just shows how much personal experience he has with abuse. He knows it when he sees it. Because he does it. Because he does it. And he's like, I wouldn't have done it this way. So it's probably fake. Ligature marks? Crazy. No, absolutely Amateur hours, what he's saying. Well, Kilmer claims that these were false allegations designed to humiliate him. Alienate him from society. Yeah, exactly. Alienate, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. So Kilmer listens to Alina, looks at this whole case, and files a report recommending that Alina's father immediately gain equal custody of her and the siblings, and that he begin therapy with Alina 
and transition back to, oh no, he, so, okay, wait, his report says that the sibling should immediately be granted custody by him and that he begin therapy with Alina and transition her also back into parenting time with her. Uh, so Kilmer also recommended that he, the dad, have equal decision-making authority over the children, including choices about their medical care, social activities, and academic path. And Kilmer described the father's assault conviction as an aberration and noted that he had considerable positive parenting skills and abilities. He also recommended that Alina's restraining order be modified so she could participate in that reunification therapy with him. Mm-hmm. So Kilmer said he became an evaluator because... This is really when we talk about the industrial process of this. It's lucrative as far as things go in psychology. Yeah. Yeah. His fees uh, average $14,000 per court-ordered report. This is, you know, I haven't seen a therapist in a little bit, but back when I did therapy, I think I was paying like $150, Yeah. Uh, and I was I was paying for the cheap shit. Yeah, so not um, the, the $14,000 per court-ordered report. Well, I'm just saying, if you have a choice between, like, listening to me yammer on about my problems and writing a silly report, yeah. you get that much more money. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're looking at a tenfold increase. He says his charges can even be as high as $30,000. And he says, this is a quote, it's a real interesting character here, people have a lot of money, and they just keep sending stuff to me. This is... Yeah, this guy is just like, money, money, money. Also, I hate I, my fucking wife and kids. Oh, I was going to say it like Abba says, but then it got weird. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> if Val Kilmer's brother was an Abba, it would be money, money, money. I hate my fucking wife and kids. <laughs> yeah, that's his outlook. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Kilmer has repeatedly been found not to report violence that fathers enact upon their children whenever he's evaluating these cases. Like, in one example, a woman in a custody case found that Kilmer failed to report to the court that her husband assaulted her while she was pregnant with her child to the extent that she had a concussion and a necklace contusion. Again? Yes, again with a neck, yeah. Jesus. He also refused to include a report of witnesses seeing a father grab his two-year-old daughter by the neck and lift her in the air. Uh, Kilmer simply said, I don't take medical providers' consideration or determination of whether a crime happened or not. Allegations, documentation, validations are not reality. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Only Val Kilmer's brother is reality. Uh, In another case, Kilmer was asked to report sexual misconduct against a child after a hospital employee reported concerning abnormal behavior. Kilmer simply accused the child's mother of, quote, knowingly making false allegations in order to further a legal position. He also threatened, threatened, and this just, I love knowing this because I'm like, Mm -hmm. these guys are fucking deranged. This is the only portion of the report that's in all capital letters, bolded and underlined. He's really making a point. That he would advise the court to restrict the mother's parenting time if she subjected the child to any further physical examinations. Here's the quote. All caps, bolded, underlined. Wait, can you do it in all caps voice? Yeah. yeah, Oh, yeah. If mother continues, unfortunately for children, a restriction of her parenting time should be reviewed by the honorable court, despite her otherwise excellent parenting skills. There's something about the last line. Despite Despite her otherwise excellent parenting skills. Which is like, I think, right... It's horrifying. It's horrifying. Let's just say if 90% of your parenting skills are excellent, maybe that other 10%. And the other 10% is you think that... No, I mean, like, we maybe the other 10%. 
that's probably just more excellent parenting skills. It seems like you got yeah. the parenting skills game yeah, on yeah, lock. Yeah. yeah. No, that's true. Um, so that's just a weird fucking story about Val Kilmer's shitty brother. Um, also, we've got Jordan and Holly's kids. This one is, uh, is they're all sad. They're all really sad. Mm-hmm. So Jordan and Holly lived in Syracuse, Utah. They had three kids who were part of a custody dispute when the couple divorced. The kids were 12, 16, and 19. The middle child alleged that his father had sexually abused him at age 11. And during the divorce, though, Holly was called an alienating parent. And uh, the kids were like, no, we want to live with our mom. We want nothing to do with our father. But, of course, we know from parental Mm -hmm. alienation theory, this is just further proof that their dad was very innocent and Holly was a capitalized, trademarked, bad woman. So in the beginning, the court appointed reunification therapists to address the kids' resistance and ill will to their father. Like, why could these kids hate their dad? And the kids are like, hi, he's a sexual predator and we're afraid of him. And the court is like, no, 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 no. Talk to this reunification therapist. So the first one was Carly McGuire, uh, who holds a PhD in family therapy. McGuire reported that the kid's father, Jordan, was definitely the reason the kids did not want to go hang out with them. She was like, his parenting style uh, is bad and this is the reason they don't feel safe around him he is the problem here jordan though disagreed and sent mcguire videos about parental alienation blaming holly for poisoning the kids against him can you imagine just get like some random guy start like you're you are actually one of the damn therapists who like you're a PhD in family therapy and you practice and you're like, I, because I am a trained professional who practices medicine, know that this is a widely debunked thing that is not real and it is bullshit that some creepy, weird, pedophilic man who hates women came up with. And some, some asshole just starts sending you videos about it? Yeah, you're like, I have a whole fucking degree in this. I gotta... You probably just got to live also. You're just like, fuck, man, I'm just trying to go about my day. Yes, and now this horrible man is sending Mm -hmm. me videos about how he's not the problem. The women and the children are the problem. So, whatever. The boys end up having to attend therapy for years, uh, during which time they are reporting repeatedly that their their father physically harmed them. They finally get to the point where they begin violently resisting visitation with their father because he's harming them. The 12-year-old son posts a video on TikTok with a gun barrel in his mouth. All three of the kids uh, come up with a suicide pact. They're like, if we're forced to live with our dad, according to court documents, we're all just going to commit suicide. Uh, Bryce Froer, though, who becomes a guardian appointed Mm -hmm. by the court to represent the boy's interest in the custody case tells the court that their refusal to visit their father and their threats of self-harm were just yes, evidence of parental alienation, right? Because they kicked mm-hmm. Carly McGuire to the curb because she was not saying the parental alienation thing. She was oh, like, yeah, no, yeah. Jordan is actually a bad father and he is terrifying and that is why the kids don't want to be around him. So Bryce Furrower comes in and says, you know what, this is just proof that they need a more severe intervention and he starts arguing against McGuire's judgment. Furrower, though, it's worth noting, no psychological training whatsoever. Just so they, some guy. They got. They had a person with the letters. Yes, and the actual practice. Yeah. Not just the letters. The letters and the license, the credential, did the things. So, Frower, absolutely no training whatsoever, recommends the kids attend turning points for a minimum mm-hmm. of 90 days, of course, after viewing some promotional materials he saw for the camp. And this, of course, McGuire is like, absolutely not. This is a terrible mm-hmm. idea. And everyone's like, shut up, you stupid woman. Mm-hmm. We're doing man things yeah. now. Right. So, McGuire believed separating the boys from their mother would just 
further harm their already precarious mental health, right? It's already suffering. Mm -hmm. And she's like, look, Holly has been their primary caregiver for most of their life. They trust her. You can't remove their only stability and, like, the good thing from their life. They can't Mm -hmm. handle it. Jordan, though, pays $12,000 for the two younger boys to attend the Turning Points Camp in Texas. The oldest boy, remember, 19, Mm -hmm. legal and an adult, can't be forced, and just ghosts his dad. His dad, for some reason, posted publicly all the times he tried to reach out to his son, and his son just ignored him as though that made him look sympathetic. But it's like, no, your your son went no contact with you for a reason. That's the... Um, I, I w- I've been listening to the new Brontes Purnell album a lot, and there's a line in it that ghosting is a clear form of communication. I, oh, I actually agree with that. Yeah. That's one of my hotter takes. Yeah. Yeah. People don't like that one on the internet. Um, that's the first time I got canceled was for saying that. That you don't owe anybody a conversation. You don't have to talk to anybody, especially if they make you feel unsafe or mm. it, uncomfortable in any way. You don't have to do that. And lots of times, I also... Women do that because mm-hmm. it's easier and safer for them than having a potentially aggressive conversation and confrontational situation and with a man. If you're like a 19-year-old, forgive me, am I remembering that the, uh, that was the one who had been sexually abused when he was younger? Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, the middle one said oh, he okay. was, but ostensibly the father oh, okay. was just the, terrible to all of them. Because um, they are all not doing great as a result of this. But, right, like... You go no contact. Like, you... You go... Yeah, that's how you protect yourself. Yeah. So, the two younger boys, though, who could be forced to go, who were, they just refused. And Jordan, their dad, had to call the police to force them to attend. And so, mm-hmm. they go, they fly to this place, right, in Texas, from Utah, along with Jordan's new wife, who the boys had never met before. It's like, <laughs> come on, you're going to learn to love me. Also, this is your new mom. Like, yeah. very, very weird. She loves me. Yeah, very terrifying. So the boys were reportedly aggressive, very resistant to treatment at the camp, didn't want to be there. I also would not want to be there if I was them. Texas police officers were called several times to respond Mm -hmm. to the 16-year-old's threats of violence towards himself and others. He only weighed 111 pounds, and they still physically restrained him several times. Like, he's a child. Yeah. You know? So after returning from Texas, the boys remained with their father, beginning Mm -hmm. that court-ordered 90-day separation period from their mom, and also any relatives who had defended her in the dispute to try to get custody. Mm -hmm. So the day after they return home, Jordan ends up having to bring the 16-year-old son to a Salt Lake City emergency room because he was afraid he was going to hurt himself or others. And -hmm. it was there that he told the doctor that he had been forced to attend a brainwashing camp, that's what he said, and he felt unsafe with his father. The next week... And that was the one who had reported that his father sexually assaulted him. The next week, Jordan brought his 12-year-old son to the ER for suicidal ideation with intent. Uh, There, the boy told medical staff about the alienation camp where he was, quote, threatened that he would be arrested if he didn't cooperate, according to medical records. He told hospital staff that while he had been there, he was forced to look at documents and watch videos showing that his mom was a bad person. The 12-year-old said that at his father's house, he was being restrained daily if he didn't do what his dad wanted, that he felt mentally broken down because of his father's threats, that he would never again get to see his mother. He then told medical staff that if he was forced to return to his father's house, he would find a way to kill himself, and he was admitted for inpatient psychiatric care. The police were called to Jordan's house multiple times over the next year. Finally, a juvenile court judge ordered the children to be removed from the home and placed back with their mom, and police brought the 12-year-old to Holly, right? The Uh 16-year-old had already run away to go live with the mom. And the next day, Jordan secured an order returning the boys to his house and police assisted with the transfer. So this is what we mean. We live in a police state. The police show up at your door, 
forcefully remove you from mm-hmm. your safety and put you in a home with somebody who abused you. Uh, I guess I have to say allegedly because this is what uh, oh, the yeah, sense yeah, yeah. is, right? We can't uh, just go around saying these people. But I didn't say a last oh, name, sorry. We, but I, I said the... I'm just going to say it because I said all the things. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly. It's all allegedly. Um, yeah. So Jordan's father, Brent, actually ends up testifying on behalf of Holly and the boys and mm-hmm. says he has had long-standing concerns about his son's parenting and the effect that the reunification camp had on his grandsons. During his testimony, he said... They don't feel safe with police officers. They don't trust you. They don't trust their father. And the reason is because they told you their story of abuse. And what happens is they get shoved back into the hands of their abuser every time. How can you ask a child to rationalize that? Okay, this is an aside, but this is, but as we've been going, or like as you've been going through these things, I've been sitting here going like, okay, you guys have your little dude self-image, right? Uh Uh-huh. A part of that has to be, like, protect the women and, like, be, like, patriarchal in the, like... But that's only if they're subjugated to you. That's why uh-huh. patriarchal protection is inherently misogynistic. Yeah. Because it's like, we look out for you. And if you're like, well, I want something different than what you think is good. It's yeah. like, shut up, woman. You don't know how to do it. You need us to protect you. That's... It's Our just, way. I get that. But it's just, like, this seems very unmatched. I don't know, like, on that version of masculinity, right? Yeah, well, you can't be the protectorate if you're the harbor. But that is also why men thrive on the idea that mm-hmm. violence against women is a random man on the street. Yeah. Because it ignores the reality of violence that women face mm-hmm. and children face. It's mostly domestic violence. It's yeah. them in their houses. It's the man who's your friend who would never do that going mm-hmm. home and being a monster to the people mm-hmm. in his family. Like, that is the reality of violence against women. So... These boys, they ended up going to turning points, remember, in Texas. And who was in charge? Mace. Yeah. Remember Mace. So uh, Mace advised the tor- the court to continue prohibiting the boys from seeing their mother until Holly, this is a quote, fully acknowledges the alienation and discontinues her negative behaviors. And Mace said the children must first relinquish their alienating thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, feelings, and behavior before they allowed to see their mom. Judge Ronald G. Russell ordered the children to continue Mace's treatment Holly was denied communication with her children, and eventually she moved from her home in Utah to discourage Mm -hmm. the boys from running away to come see her from their dad's house again, because she said doing so would cause the court's no-contact order to continuously be extended. Mm -hmm. Which I can't even... That must be so hard to to do it for them, you know? To be like, we just got to get this over with. You just got to get through it. And that's the, like... Presumably, these all these folks have no last name for a reason. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, to protect the children, and a um, lot of them, the kids are go by their middle names. I see. These, so it is um, pretty anonymized. Um, but I do have the sources for all this reporting. Yeah. And a lot of it is uh, ProPublica has done a lot of research on this stuff. Um, yeah. So we also have a UK mom. It's not just in the United States. Mm-hmm. A UK woman named Amanda. Her relationship with her husband begins to sour. She starts uh, getting afraid of him. He starts yelling at her, demanding sex, saying she should give up her job. Then things escalate to physical violence. Um, Her children report that their father is frightening them. And she's totally shocked. She does all the the good woman things, quote unquote, that you're supposed Mm -hmm. to do when you're a victim of domestic violence, right? She takes her kids. She tries to leave. And she is surprised to learn that a parental alienation expert finds her to have psychological issues and says she's turned her kids against their father. 
And all of the evidence of his violent behavior was discounted. And instead, the kids were forced to live with their dad and cut all contact with their mom. And after months of isolation, she was finally granted two hours of supervised contact every mm-hmm. two weeks. It's wild. So yeah. the next one is a really bad one as well. Uh, this one is Jill. Mm-hmm. So Jill is from Carlsbad, California. That's like a, by San Diego for people who don't know Southern California. I literally didn't know that. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't. Why? I don't. I've never been to Carlsbad. Oh, okay, all right. There's some caves there. There's some caverns. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, Jill was a divorcee with children from a previous marriage, and she met a man named Thomas on an online dating website. Mm -hmm. So, Thomas had some master degrees, too, one in engineering, one in business. He was also religious, which she liked, and he was eager to take on parenting Jill's children that she had from a previous marriage. And she was like, wow, that's, like, so rare Mm -hmm. and cool. However... Oh, they date for a while, actually. They date for a few years, and then they get married. However, a few years after marrying, Thomas starts to display patterns of violence. He starts shoving. He starts insulting her. She, he starts threatening Jill, and he starts mm-hmm. doing it in front of her kids. Yeah. Uh, and soon, Jill says that he starts to act kind of aggressively towards the children as well. And she's like, that's it. Enough is enough. I'm getting mm-hmm. a restraining order. But the restraining order request is denied. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard. It's hard. Thomas, though, leaves the house and instead rents a room in a house nearby where the kids still visit him regularly. And I think it's really interesting he rented a room because he has a master's degree in business and engineering and he's renting a room. But whatever. I don't know what's up with that. Yeah. Um, so after seven years of marriage, Jill finally files for a divorce. But the kids are, of course, still permitted to spend time with Thomas. And as the divorce proceedings go on, Jill's son, Robert, then 10 years old, testifies that during an argument over his math homework, Thomas repeatedly grabbed, shoved, and spanked him. Mm-hmm. After the testimony, Jill files a petition for a domestic violence restraining order, which Thomas fought, saying he did not mistreat Robert. In the end, the judge presiding over the divorce named Patty Radkin signs a stay-away order that prohibits Thomas from contact with Robert, but it doesn't really address the allegations of violence, and just a few weeks later, Thomas asks Radican to name him Robert's legal father, saying he'd helped raise the boy from toddlerhood. And bizarrely, Radican rules in his favor and orders a custody evaluation. She's like, granted, you're now this kid's dad. She had just this is- issued a stay away order. And now she's like, fine, you're his dad. And we're going to look at custody since you and Jill are getting divorced. Do you think she was just like, look, I'm just going to make my my judicial rulings randomly it feels really random um unfortunately she gets more consistent from here on out okay so the following year radican orders robert into the care of a therapist named mitra sarkosh who saw robert and thomas together around 20 times charging 200 Mm -hmm. bucks an hour right within a few months though sarkosh says robert is not improving and she blames jill saying robert was just saturated with negativity about his father uh, so Jill is like, I'm not so into this, and a new therapist gets chosen. And apparently, um, Robert had not been very comfortable with the old therapist, because in 2020, at the first appointment with his brand new therapist, now 12-year-old Robert feels comfortable enough to disclose uh, that his stepdad, who had now been named his legal father, had been sexually abusing him. And the therapist immediately alerted the San Diego County Child Welfare Agency, which launched an investigation with Child Welfare and the County Sheriff's Department into Thomas. 
Uh, Robert told a social worker that his legal father, Thomas Wright, now divorced from his mother, Jill, had begun assaulting him five years prior when he was just seven years old. And according to Robert, Thomas, this is like really bad. It's really, really bad. I'm so sorry to have to tell everybody this. Thomas would pin him down, cover his mouth, and force him into acts he found disgusting, he said. Sometimes he said that Thomas would recite Bible verses during the attacks, claiming the devil was in Robert's heart. All while Robert tried to fight back, hitting, punching, and kneeing his stepfather as he struggled to breathe. Thomas denied the claims in family court. This never happened, he asserted in a filing, all caps. And instead, Thomas said Jill was just engaging in the pattern of parental manipulation we now call parental alienation. That December, Child Welfare Services substantiated Robert's allegations, though, calling them credible, clear, and concise. Uh -huh. They warned in the report the agency is worried that if given the opportunity, uh, Thomas Winninger was his name, will sexually abuse Robert again. The family court judge, though, Patty Radican, appoints a custody evaluator named Miguel Alvarez to submit his own report. Again, these custody evaluators that aren't... They don't have... There's training. no qualification. No, there's... That, yeah. Like, you have to get... They're not therapists. They're not psychological professionals. They're not mental health professionals. They're just some guy. Just some guy. And this guy is a real interesting one to choose. Uh, Alvarez, for his part, once co-authored a handbook for parents in custody disputes that included details on how to prove an alienation claim. Mm -hmm. So this guy is pro-alienation, all right? Alvarez administered a personality test on Jill, then said the results indicated she suffered from, quote, extreme hypervigilance and, quote, persecutory fears. I, again, the circular thing. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, what is it? Um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean... It's not really happening or something? It's not Yeah, really, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Alvarez is like, big surprise, the woman's crazy. I don't, mm. just, she's just insane. Wow. And people with these traits, Alvarez wrote, are often quick to anger and overreact to perceived or imagined threats. Mm. So he's like, she's a crazy liar, crazy, crazy lady. Thomas, meanwhile, scored normal on the same test. Shocking, right? Yeah. And Alvarez said his performance on psychosexual and polygraph tests was inconsistent with Robert's allegation of sexual abuse. The 136-page evaluation cost more than $90,000. So, basically, Thomas paid $90,000 for this so, guy uh, to say he was super, super sane and his ex-wife was crazy and everybody was lying. Alvarez is getting paid. Alvarez is getting paid. This yeah. is what we mean where we're like, this is an industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So following the report being submitted, Radican tells Jill, ma'am, you didn't show very well in the report. You're toxic. You're poisonous. You're an alienator. I don't believe for a second that Robert's father molested him. Not for a second. I think you've put it in his head. Also, this is the other thing. You're toxic. You're poison. You're an alienator. This is, it's not... Is that, yeah, that's not a legal ruling. Yeah, that's just like... No, these family court judges, though, get, mm -hmm. they can do whatever they want. No, that was the Israman guy from the, who was like, you know, your mom can't say anything for you, your dad can't say anything for you. It's like, they're getting, they're into it. Yeah, they're into the power. They yeah. like it. So, Radican grants Thomas's bid for custody and orders him to enroll Robert and his sisters in family bridges, right? Mm -hmm. She bars Jill from all contact with her children for a minimum of 90 days. While at family bridges, Robert becomes suicidal. He said, the only thing that stopped me from throwing myself off the balcony was the 24-7 surveillance. I never thought so many people would be that horrible, controlling, and manipulative towards little kids. 
At the end of the workshop, Robert went home with Thomas and had what he called, quote, horrible, weird, depressive anxiety episodes. Three months after losing her children, Jill found something horrifying. Uh, in a cloud storage account she'd once shared with Thomas, she found thousands of images and videos of child pornography, including explicit images of her three children. So we yeah. have categorical proof that Robert was telling the truth. Surprise, surprise. Thomas is arrested uh, and is charged with 19 felonies, including possession of child pornography and 14 counts of committing forcible lewd acts against a child. Robert. Mm-hmm. He pleaded not guilty and was released on bail, and uh, his access to the children was suspended. Because of the no-contact order he'd previously obtained uh, against Jill, the children landed in a county shelter. Yeah. Really, really, really sad. And these stories are mm-hmm. endless. There's so many. Uh, you found that one story about a nine-year-old boy who was seized by three police officers and placed into juvenile detention facility uh, because he refused to get into his father's car for scheduled visitation. Yeah, and then he was left in, like, a juvenile detention center for, I think, over the weekend mm-hmm. um, where he was abused by other boys That's in the so detention center. Um the boys agreed to, to cooperate with, or he agreed to cooperate with the court order, and the judge deemed this a success. So we got oh. a success here. According to the judges. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean. Yeah, no, it's horrible. Um, <laughs> and it just, I, like, it, it really is a parade of misery. It is a parade of misery. That's so true. Um, so, you know, the whole question, you probably find yourself asking when you hear all this is like, why? Besides the money element, right? The money is a big driving force. People make mm-hmm. their livings off this and they make good livings. Like that one person said, business is booming. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, uh, I saw that you were going, that we're going to be talking about the sort of like men's rights or father's rights thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep thinking about like the I God I want to sound I don't want to sound like an asshole the ideology and material thing, where it's like the sort of like ideological stuff about like women be lying yeah kind of thing, buttresses like a whole material system yeah it's true um, and as a consequence of which I think they are what what would you call it complexly articulated to one another ideology um, yeah. And so, like, the older kind of patriarchal notion about the household, as you put it, uh, men are are supposed to be the heads of the household or yeah. the domestic. Um, that supports, like, a very, like, material system and, like, violating that material production. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it plays in with the whole of the nuclear family, the patriarchal mm-hmm. nuclear family, you're isolated from community, the man is the head of the household, mm-hmm. he's responsible for, you know, making all of the decisions, leading things, there's also, like, all of these, uh, like, financial and labor considerations that go along with maintaining that system, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's about re- reproduction, like, or capital reproduction, but also about social reproduction, mm-hmm. and who, like, who women are supposed to be within that. Totally. Um, and how women and children, like, women and children are not supposed to be autonomous. That's completely correct, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what I get into when I think about this is we have some questions. Like, why do these abusive or allegedly abusive parents fight so hard to keep custody of their children? And we talked about this a little bit. There's two reasons, though. Number one Mm -hmm. is to continue the pattern of abuse against the children. And number two is to continue the pattern of abuse against their wives who have chosen to leave. Like... 
by removing themselves from the home, the wives have effectively chosen to regain, not chosen, the, the mm-hmm. wives have effectively put themselves in a position to regain some amount of autonomy and power and control. And that is infuriating to a man who mm-hmm. views his identity in opposition to a woman's freedom. Like he is, like you said, the man of the house. He's the controlling mm-hmm. entity. That's seen as like something offensive for a woman to do. It's insulting to his dignity and pride. And Maintaining a tighter grip on their children is a way for these abusive men to also maintain a tighter grip over these women who are trying to escape them. Yeah, I mean, they're going to... Granting visitation or some sort of joint shared custody, which, again, is the majority of cases. Yeah. Uh, And if alienation has been, what is it, like, cross-accused or whatever, uh, the majority of cases favor joint custody. Yeah. Um... That's continued contact with that woman. Yeah, they also, ha- yeah, the woman has to give mm-hmm. them, co- and even if there's like a no contact rule, yeah. he still won. Yeah. He's like, I don't care about the kids, but you cared about the kids, and mm-hmm. I took them from you. Yeah. And I like that. This is, you said this Joan Meyer quote earlier, but I really liked it here because I think it plays in too, and that's, uh, yeah, like batterers, right? Their vendettas mm-hmm. against their children's mothers are also often played out in aggressive litigation against her, especially over custody. Custody litigation is an ideal mechanism for denigrating the mother by providing a forum for attacks on her dignity and competence as a mother while enlisting court personnel to join the attack. Like you said that earlier, and this really mm-hmm. is the big why. It's a why it's a way to humiliate a woman, it's a way to gain control over her and power. It's it's mm-hmm. it's real and that's what abuse is about, right? And control that's why power. when it's like you're poisonous, you're toxic or whatever, it's like this is just some vituperative asshole. Yeah. Using the courts to continue yelling at someone. Right. He's now now he's got someone else to scream at his wife, and he paid yeah. ninety thousand dollars to do it. And Mariel Albert is a clinical counselor at Ober Shalom, which is a Montreal area women's shelter. And she says she's noticed more and more of the women she advises are fighting these allegations of parental alienation. She says her clients end up finding themselves in a catch-22. If there is domestic violence, women are encouraged to leave or go to a shelter to protect themselves and their children. However, that same desire to leave to keep your children safe is later used as evidence that alienation is occurring. And this just goes in with the, Mm -hmm. there's no way to be a perfect victim. There's no way to be Mm -hmm. a good woman. No matter what you do, you did it wrong. Why didn't you do it better, you stupid woman? Ugh. And it's Mm -hmm. like, this is the constant thing we see. Like, if you stay with an abuser, you're asking for it. If you leave the abuser, like, you're doing it wrong. And you're probably lying. And you're probably lying. Yeah. yeah. It's like there's no way to win. And meanwhile, courts are super keen on defending parental alienation syndrome. Mm-hmm. And this is something we were talking about, David, right? About how, like, people don't want abuse allegations to be true. Yeah. And I know, like, there is, I think we all, at least I, like, the idea like oh a two-parent household is better right like that gets said a lot and so we don't want and it's like i think it's like a truism um and so i think like the we are uh, you know it is easy to countenance a lot of bullshit uh and pretend it's not real if you're like my overriding sort of goal is to have this thing that we say is so important, which is fathers in their lives and a two-parent household. But it's like, that means abuse in some of these instances. And and I think that's when Mm -hmm. we hear that guy Evans earlier Mm -hmm. being like, well, parental alienation is more damaging than physical or sexual abuse. And that kind of goes along with that idea that the most important thing in the world a child could have is some dude in their life Mm-hmm. even if he's hurting them. 
Yeah. And, like, it's, like, where did we get this idea? Mm-hmm. And these bad men who like to hurt women, who like to hurt children, they're the ones who benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we talk about how this has, like, a gender bias, right? Like, you talked about, too, how the this, like, the father's rights movement created this idea, right, that mm-hmm. men are treated unfairly in... Yeah, and it's actually funny because... So the idea is that men get, like like, get the short end of the stick in custody hearings, but that's actually, like, uh, the vast majority, this is again from Meyer, the vast majority of custody hearings result in some form of uh, joint custody or shared custody, and so I think there is this idea that it's, like, like, the court, we think that, you know, the courts somehow favor women, This is, like, the thing that, like, or the popular narrative is, like, oh, men really, they have a hard time and end up having to pay child support and have no visitations, when it's really, like, they use parental alienation to continue to abuse and game the system. And we find that, according to the data, that they win more than women do. They actually statistically have an advantage, even in Mm -hmm. court custody cases, despite the popular narratives we hear. Um, so I also liked what Grant Wyeth says about why parental alienation remains so prevalent, even though it's been debunked a number of times and is really, really harmful and often can lead to children being, yes, killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wyeth says, the state still sees the household as a domain of male authority. Women and children who report abuse are defying this authority and the state feels the need to punish them for it. It is a way of legally enforcing a cultural attribute. For those of us who live in the 21st century, this can seem brutal and absurd, yet culture is often incredibly difficult to shift, and the idea men do have the right to enforce their household authority through violence was the norm until very recently. Many people still believe this, even in highly educated judges. Wythe also says the state is worried about what these men will do if it doesn't submit itself to at least some of their demands. There's a belief that male violence is an inevitable aspect of human existence. Men lust for power and control, and they use violence as a tool of their power, and this is never going to change. The state's assessment is that it needs to minimize the violence by not risking aggravating men. So here the state asks women and children to carry a certain amount of male violence for our societies. This is because there's a fear of wider forms of violence from either lone wolves like Leonard Warwick or from more organized male supremacist groups if these men feel that their need for power and control isn't being respected. It's basically a form of cowardice from the state because it feels that it has no solution of how to handle these types of men. So women and children have to suffer for the state to protect itself. I mean, I I feel like I would almost go for it because it sounds like he's saying, look, the state is being held hostage by these angry dudes. The state's actively colluding with them. I think yeah. he acknowledges that, though. I think yeah. he's saying the state is being weak and pathetic by upholding men, allowing to, them to be the kings of their mm-hmm. little castle so that they don't seek power elsewhere. Oh, I see. I just I like that he like he's basically like shaming the state for be, not being enough of a tough bro. Yeah, the state needs to get more aggro and be a real man. You know, uh, get those reps in. Uh, be stronger, state. Yeah. Stand up to the men. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so in a bit of happy news, uh, in May of 2003, at the age of 72, Gardner dosed himself with painkillers and stabbed himself to death. Oh. So that's good. Yeah. That's good. Uh, his legacy, though, does live on in these horrifying ways in our justice system and family courts. Dr. Paul Fink, a past president of the APA, said of Gardner a few months after his death, 
He invented a concept and talked about it as if it were proven science. It's not. Fink called parental alienation syndrome junk science. And that's it. That's all I yeah. got on parental alienation syndrome. What do you do? You got any final thoughts on this thing, David? What do you think? I mean, it seems pretty like the other thing is it's just all so dumb. Yeah, but that's it's like a, the banality of evil thing, right? I mean, one would. This is worse than that. Like, well, no, but you know what I mean. But it's like it's just stupid. Like, if you think about it for two seconds, you're like, this doesn't, doesn't make, make sense. sense, right? Like, nothing about this makes sense, yeah. which makes me feel like, oh, making sense or not making sense is the point. Yeah, I think the thing that was interesting to me when listening to this is how many of these judges were women. Oh, yeah. I mean, that... You know, it just shows that women uphold patriarchal standards all the time. But it's like, some of these women took gleeful joy in admonishing other women as being liars or manipulators or bad mothers. I mean, remember, it was Moss or whatever, the lady in Texas who forced everyone to write the damn letters. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. And it, like, it does, it seems... The thing about, you know, oppressive systems of power is that they're systems. Right. Right. It's not like... It's not individual people. It is systemic, definitely. And, you know, I think this is like an interesting example of how just like misogyny and capitalism interact. And so it's so rare you get to see such a a clear-cut example of it. Yeah. I mean, it's also the like how it interacts with like i can't get over the privatization shit yeah that's the part where it's just like every fucking system in our goddamn country they're all oppressive and bad but we've also now made them private yeah which makes it more annoying and worse yeah it's true it's true there's less oversight there's less Mm -hmm. accountability it's all profit driven it's less effective it's I mean, I don't know that there would be a way to do this effectively. It's not I, effective I mean, like, at all. But the, the family court, though, could be more effective. Wouldn't be a good way to do prisons effectively that I would get down with. No, there's right, not. There's really and like not. this is kind of like that, where it's just like I don't want this to be done effectively. I want this not to not to be done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not to be done. It is really scary, though. It is mm-hmm. scary to think that you you could be a victim, right? You mm-hmm. can be harmed by a man in your house, which is how most domestic violence happens, well, most violence against women happens. And then you could do all the things society tells you you're supposed to do. Get your kids safe, protect them, get out of there. And you do this and it's such a struggle that maybe it takes you years to even be able to mm-hmm. do. You gotta set up the secret savings account. You gotta put your money in it. You gotta make all these plans and you finally get out, right? It's supposed to be the hardest thing you've ever done. And you know, a court throws you right back into it and then calls you a stupid lying bitch. And all because some asshole who, I, you know, seemed real into pedophilia Yeah. said it was okay. Because you actually wanted the abuse and the domination and the assault because the you're sperm. playing coy. You want the sperm so bad, you're playing coy, you dumb bitch. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just, just um, it's shocking how every day society finds new ways to just call women dumb bitches that's all this is that seems that checks out i guess for patriarchal society yeah anyway so that's our episode on parental alienation if you wanted to hear another case study we did have a remaining one up on our uh patreon and the outro will give you the details on how to access that Mm -hmm. otherwise we are going to try to stay consistent with our episodes uh going into me being on book tour we'll see how we do i think 
will do pretty and well. And we're doing, what, are we doing Reagan next week? Yeah, let me tell you guys a little update on what we got coming up on the calendar. We've got Ronald Reagan. We've got Stockholm Syndrome. We've got the Knights of Labor. I'm so excited about that one. Yeah, we've got Rhodesia, which mm-hmm. definitely not an allegory for Israel. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's very <laughs> much this. we got one about the apocalypse. Oh, that'll be fun. That'll be a fun one. I feel like, you know, I went to an evangelical Christian school for a bit. Right. I'm just going to uh, channel my a former Bible teacher for an hour and a half. Oh, wow. That'll be good. A little um, bit treat for everyone. Yeah. We've got a whole bunch of interesting stuff coming up this year on the podcast, and we are always uh, thinking about that audio quality. We're going to try a new thing, uh, too, with two microphones, and it might download, like, an equalizing app, so we'll see how that and goes. And I'm going to suck in helium to sort of match match my pitch yeah oh that's so nice that'll be i could talk down here really low like this is that how i sound i don't know is it (laughs) (laughs) kind of hurt to do i couldn't hold it for very long i feel no you just uh, have a 20 year smoking habit oh you know i only smoked a cigarette once outside of the cba and it hurt too bad and i coughed a bunch i believe you said smoking isn't punk yeah, that's when I threw yeah. this, it was the CBA was our punk video, and I threw the cigarette down on the ground, and I called everybody a corporate shill, man. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. Thanks for sticking around, and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Pick Me Up, I'm Scared. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can find us there at patreon.com slash pickmeupimscared. For $3 a month, you can access bonus content there. But if 3 bucks a month is too much for you to spend right now, we totally get it, and we're just happy you're here. As always, you can find the sources for this week's episode just by scrolling down a bit in the description.